Hey everyone, this is Dan with the Spiritual Underground Podcast coming to you from the studios at DTM Enterprises uh, where lots happens. Podcasts, speaker tape services, uh, woodworking and handymaning. So if you want any woodworking or handyman working in Louisville metropolitan area, uh, look me up, 502-292-7444. Uh, I want to talk about 12-step spiritual recovery for just a moment. Uh, there's over 100 12-step fellowships around that all have their own singleness of purpose for the most part. And uh, <clears throat> there was really no place that was just offering the 12 steps to anybody uh, and, and you know, uh, so 12 step spiritual recovery was set up to do that. People who may not be an addict, may not be an alcoholic, uh, life just isn't the way they think it could be. Uh, as I always say, uh, I can guarantee you that if you'll work these 12 steps and practice these principles in your daily life, your life will get better, and that's a guarantee. Uh, there's we say guarantee is death and taxes, but it's also if you work the 12 steps your life and practice the principles, that's the other thing. You got to do it the whole way. Uh, your life will get better. So uh, anybody out there wants to go to 12stepspiritualrecovery.com, the meeting schedule is on there. We have Zoom meetings and live meetings here in the Louisville area. Uh, Zoom people can join from anywhere in the world. Uh, 12-step spiritual recovery the book is by james christopher cohen it can be found on amazon so tssr 12-step spiritual recovery recovery for all and come as you are all right we'll get that stuff out of the way uh got a new guest i had i i don't think i've met you before we might have bumped into each other at some point some place you know yeah, uh, one of the what um and now her name that name trips me up what's her name again Ricky Payne. No, the the girl that... Uh, Kendall. Kendall. I don't know yes. why that won't stick. When Kendall was here, she said, you need to get Ricky. Do you know Ricky? And uh, and that's been a little bit ago. But uh, so tonight we have him. I, was, I don't know. I saw a post on Facebook the other day. And that sometimes I just know that I'm like being tapped on the shoulder uh-huh. uh, by higher power. Yes. You know? And yes. I just know that. All the time. You know? And it was like, okay. Is it odd or is it God? You yeah, know exactly. Right. Yeah. So uh, that happened the other day, and you jumped right in the boat in a hurry. So I really appreciate that. That's my pleasure. Uh, so, um, and you can say your own. So you already did, Ricky Payne. Yeah. What's your sobriety date? Uh, December the ninth, two thousand nineteen. Two thousand nineteen. Good job, and um, so I always like to go back. Uh, were you born? In this area, did you? Oh no. no, oh no, no. Where were you I'm, born? Where'd you grow up? Uh, I'm a military brat. I was born in uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia, mm. and uh, yeah, that was a very interesting uh, upbringing uh, per, per se. Uh, and, and as I get into my story, your father over was here, my dad was in the Marine Corps for 20 years, okay. Vietnam vet, mm. you know all that. Mom was a stay-at-home mom for several years, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was okay. I mean, it wasn't bad. You know, yeah. it was just uh, just a different a different lifestyle than Kentucky. Yeah, uh, so Did you move around a lot when you were young. Yes, yeah, yeah. Probably five elementary schools. Yeah, two different middle schools, or back then it was called junior high school. Yeah, you know, I don't know if anybody remembers yeah. junior high. I went schools. to junior high school. Yeah, and then uh, you know, of course, then you know, high school started into high school before we moved to Kentucky, and then I graduated high school here Did like you? two years. So it was really, really weird. Yeah. So, so most of your life you've been here since then, huh? Yes. Yeah. Uh, brother, sisters? I have a younger brother. He's one of us. His name's Donnie. Uh, he's, he's in recovery. He's had his Good. struggles. But uh, yeah, he's younger than I am. And then I have an older sister named Margaret. And she, uh, she lives in Texas. 
uh, we're pretty close. Good. Where she and I are actually closer than her, my brother and I. But we were, we're 18 months apart, and my brother came along like four years later. And yeah, you know, it's a pretty good divide once it starts getting up to that four years, and so it starts being a yeah a little bit of a divide. So it was a little different uh, for us, you know, after he came along, you know, because. He was the baby, so yep. that was. Uh, there's, I think that's probably what my alcoholism, alcoholism probably kicked in. You know, yeah. when he came along, I would say. Some of those uh, heard people talk about when little kids and said, "I got my first resentment. My baby brother was born." <laughs> right, right. Well, I wouldn't say that it was immediately, but there was a lot of uh, childhood resentments that, that were formed uh, yeah. immediately. Of course. Um, yeah. So, as far as how attention was spread, how discipline was given, all of that, you know, it. it it definitely took its took its place, you know. Yeah. Being a middle child, so, you know, you had the the only girl in the fam in the family. You know, she got treated like the only girl, and then you had the baby, and you got treated like the baby. So, and I got treated like the middle child. Go play, you know. So yeah. it was uh it was interesting. Definitely some real dynamics to that stuff that yes that we take yes. for granted to some level. You know, uh, right. That's what like. You know, those people that come into 12-step spiritual recovery that are not alcoholics and addicts and that kind of stuff, you know, this same kind of thing can happen to them and they just didn't pick up a drug or they didn't start right. gambling or they didn't, you know, and they can, because yeah. I think alcoholism is somewhat of a generic term for I agree. this spiritual malady thing yeah. that we have. You're it's right. probably more, more accurate to say the spiritual malady. I agree. I totally agree. Uh, and you don't have to be an alcoholic to have that. It's Especially true. when you're walking around, true. you start uh, seeing that. But I will say that the fourth step helped me to identify that. Yeah. You know, going through the steps helped me to identify that, that, that I did have that spiritual malady that, and that, that is where it started by doing that proper four step and really finding out, uh, who I was getting honest with myself in a way that I'd never gotten honest before. That's the only reason I'm able to be able to be here today and tell you, yeah, my, my childhood wasn't great. It just is what it, it is what it is, you know? And, yeah. uh, yeah. Well, I really didn't have any, you know, I, had, I grew up in this house right here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, mom and dad moved in here in 1972. I was three years old okay. and, and, and I had a really, really good childhood. Wow. This disease didn't care. So you were born in the sixties. I'm a sixty. I'm a sixty-nine model. Okay, I'm a seventy-four model. So yeah, right there. Um, but I've also had people on this podcast that had horrible childhoods. Right. You right. know, stuff that actually you know well, rocks me back in my chair. Yeah. And um, this disease don't care. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. And I've heard some too. But I, I cannot sit here and say that my childhood was horrible. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have everything I wanted, but I had it a lot. I always, we always had what we needed. Right. Yeah. You know, and I'm grateful for that. Yeah. So, uh, I don't think you're supposed to get everything you wanted. I, I definitely don't. <laughs> the world think don't you're seem to be set up to. that way. Yeah, I think there was. Uh, I think I will go ahead and say this early. Uh, I think my earliest childhood resentment. Uh, the one that was the most prominent thing that stood on my four-step, my sponsor laughed at me, was that my dad never did build me a treehouse after mm. he told me he was going to do it. Mm. And uh, that hurt me a lot as a kid because, you know, I ran to all the other kids in the neighborhood and said, my dad's going to build me a treehouse, you know. And so it affected me, my instincts, my social instincts, uh, security, everything was affected mm -hmm. because my dad didn't come through. And uh, there was a lot of that that happened, you know, a lot of promises made that were didn't get followed through with. Uh, I think his intentions and his heart was in the right place, but his time didn't allow him to do it. Yeah. And uh, I can see that now, but back then I couldn't see that. Yeah. So. Yeah. We're, yeah. 
That's about the worst thing yeah. that probably happened in my, in my opinion in my childhood. Yeah. Everything else I probably deserved, <laughs> the spankings and stuff like that. You know, so yeah. So yeah. Uh, school went okay. Um, I didn't. Um, I didn't apply myself much in school because I was a people pleaser from an early age. Uh, my earliest childhood memory, I was five years old and I was on the playground and there's this girl named Stacy Honey and she was like probably the prettiest blonde haired girl in school and every guy would flirt with her. And so I walked up to this girl and I was like, uh, I was like, can you do a, she has, I said, I can do a cartwheel. And she's like, really? And she put a little hands on her hips. You know how little girls do? And I said, yeah. She said, well, do one. And I was like, all right. So I did a cartwheel and she's like, can you do two? And I was like, yeah. So I, she said, what? Uh, and she just kind of looked at me, so I did two. And she's, can you do three? So, you know, it, it kind of escalated. And then I know I'm doing cartwheels, and she's run, run off with some other kid, you know. And, you know, and, and that was, the, but, but that mindset, that, that started to develop a pattern in my mind. I need to do stuff to get people to like me. Hmm. And that's when people pleasing started. And uh, that affected my childhood in a major way. I was always worried about what people thought of me. I always felt less than. Mm. If someone had, somebody had something that I didn't have, I was very, not, not would say, I wouldn't say jealous as all the time, but I was more envious and I needed that. Like I was gonna do whatever I could do to have that. And a lot of times I never gained what they had. And I, but I always thought that maybe, maybe someone will like me enough for me to be able to get that. I didn't have a lot of attention from my parents uh, because I was the middle child. I was the most active of the kids. I mean, I was athletic. Uh, I was naturally smart, you know, straight A's in math and English. Mm. Uh, well, if I would have applied myself, I probably could have had straight A's, but, you know, I didn't care. I didn't care about school. I cared about friends and pressing people, being a show-off and all that, and that affected my childhood big time. Yeah. Big th- and I was a nerd on top of that. <laughs> I was, a, you know, a Kmart kid, you know, buddies and, buddies. you know, all that. And yeah. uh, generic clothes, I think, until uh, I was probably 13 or 14, and I had a paper route and was able to buy my own clothes. Mm-hmm. And when I, at that point, my parents stopped buying me shoes. Yeah. At 14 I'm years old. I my own. I don't want. Can I get a shoe allowance? Right. Take your $20 that yeah. you was going to spend on me, and I'll add it to my pocket. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that is funny. Then, you know, that stuff, it is that, that, well, there's a book sitting here someplace. I had this guy on healing the wounds of childhood and culture. Right. And it's the same. That's you know these things that happened to you. Nobody was trying to hurt you, right? Nobody right. Was trying no, to do it was that, an intentional. Make a difference. I still received no. the wound exactly because I didn't have the tennis shoes that cool kids had. Exactly. And yeah. And I was like, I, I wanted to be liked so much that I tried to fit into every culture that there was like i wanted to be someone at one point i wanted to be like a metalhead and i uh, and i never have ever been a hardcore rock person but i was listening to iron maiden had four iron maiden posters in my room and apparently my parents thought i was uh starting to get into say uh satanism and uh uh so that was a very interesting phase of my life and uh you know i used to watch hellraiser on repeat and uh and hellraiser too and you know it was it was just a very very dark dark time in my life but it, I wanted to do something to be able to impress people to like you know I wanted a girlfriend so bad so so bad everything like everybody had a girlfriend yeah. uh, but uh, Virginia Beach was a very uh, what's the what's the word um, uh, culturally very diverse uh, every culture you can think of was there 
that wasn't just hit you know Hispanics, but there was you know the, the people that call, actually called themselves Latinos or people from from Spain, uh, people from uh, Puerto Rico. Hmm. You know, I mean, every genre of the Latin American society was there, and then you had blacks, and you had whites, and then you had uh, any, any any kind of clique or social group you can think of. Everything was there, so you had all of these options and these directions that you could go in. And then on here on the outside, of course, you have all the little you know church Christian kids, you know, and or then you, or maybe the, the nerds and the geeks or whatever. But I even got rejected by the nerds. Yeah. Like they, they didn't even want nothing to do with me because they knew I was just pretending. I was never a genuine person because mm-hmm. I was trying to find out who I was. Uh, I was trying to. Well, I wasn't really trying to find out who I was. I was trying to fit in, just fit in somewhere. Yeah, it's that chameleon thing. You know, I, I never change my color to get whatever group I can. Exactly. Somebody take me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, another memory that, that kind of kept me going, and I'm, I may skip around That's a little okay. bit. Uh, no I, was, I was eight years old, and my mom got me these roller skates. Uh, of course, my dad's still in the Marine Corps, so he can't really spend a whole lot of time teaching me how to ride a bike and this and all that stuff. Well, that came later. But she got me these roller skates, and where we lived at, our road, I don't know if you remember the roads back in the day, but they weren't smooth asphalt. Yeah. Like, it had rocks in the concrete. And uh, my mom said, here's these roller skates. Why don't you go out there and teach yourself how to skate? And I got so excited because she believed in me. I said, I'm going to go. My mom was my strength and my rock growing up. Uh, she was my best friend a lot of times when I didn't have anybody. And she encouraged me and pushed me a lot. And so I went out in that street and I started skating and I'd fall down and I'd get rocks in my knees and scrapes, you know, and I, she said she would wash me from the kitchen window and I would just scrape them rocks out of my knees and I would get back up and I would go again. And she said I was always so determined. And uh, the reason I wanted to bring that up is that that drove me in a lot of ways in different things in my life. Like I played baseball for nine years. I ran track and cross country in high school and junior high. Uh, it was very very successful in both not as successful as i probably could have been if i would have fully committed like mm-hmm. i said i've always i was what you would call the 80 percent guy mm-hmm. you know i'm gonna do just enough that people notice that i'm doing it just so i can get someone to like me yeah you know and uh that went on you know playing baseball uh running track and stuff until probably i was 14 years old and uh i got invited to a school dance and i was like okay this is huge you know, and this girl actually liked me. You know, and I, I was freaking out. I didn't know what to do. Hold on, and, you got uh, invited to a dance by a girl? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh yeah. She was a girl <laughs> down the street, and she had been watching me for a while, and I had no idea. You know how it is. When you're a kid, you have no idea who likes you. Yeah. I, I think I'm 48 years old. I still don't have any yeah, idea right. who likes me. Like, when's but, that going uh, to change? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, she invited me to this dance, and I remember they were playing the song Chubby Checker and the Twist. You know, and she grabbed my hand, and she started twisting. And I was like, what? And I just kind of looked at her like she was stupid. And, and she stopped. She said, can't you dance? I said, and I wouldn't even answer. I just left. I was so embarrassed. My mm-hmm. face turned red, ran home, and I uh, told my mom, I said, Mom, I don't know how to dance. She goes, sure you do. She said, you get over there in your room, and she said, you turn on that dance party USA and that MTV dance shows, and you watch Soul Train, and you watch American Bandstand, you watch how them people dance, and you just do what they do. I said, really? She said, you taught yourself how to skate, didn't you? I said, okay, all right. So I spent hours upon hours in my room. I even practiced in the swimming pool doing some of these moves. And I started, I became one, uh, what you would call one of the hip hop dancers, you know, at 14 years old. And 
any, like I said, anything I do, I'm real passionate about, and I had to be the best, like because I, I guess that perfectionist AA, mm. perfectionist mentality, yeah. got to be the best, and uh, and I got really good at it, really really good at it, and I the it very the next good at it, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the very next dance we went to, man, I got out there, and man, I get to put that, I got right in the middle of that circle, and everybody was just pumping their fist and stuff, and I thought, oh man, this is great, I've arrived, here it is, finally, and then Monday it was crickets, you know. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it was like it wasn't enough, and that now I still I still continued to dance and hang out and I actually made I made several friends, but it wasn't the friends I was looking for, which was women, mm. you know. Uh, but the friends that I did gain were some pretty solid friends that also did that kind of the hip hop dancing, and that led to some other pretty cool you know things, some dance contests and stuff that we did together, and a lot of a lot of uh, creativity and uh, kind of a clicky thing so it was cool in that regard Uh, but I started to feel like more of a show off than I did as far as getting the attention the attention that I wanted Hmm. and uh, it you know what do they say is one's too many and too many is never enough and I mean that that applied in, in so many different areas like just one little I didn't want one compliment I wanted all of them right you know yeah and uh and that really uh, affected the way that I kind of went about doing things. I started to kind of shy away a little bit. And I was just kind of just back and forth and very indecisive. I'm like, well, this is not working, so let me try something different. And uh, shortly after that, uh, the, uh, really, uh, this is a, kind of a, a very turning point in my teenage years uh, that kind of led me into a lot of resentments and a lot of pain. I met this girl named Dana. And Dana was the very first person ever in 14 years of my life to ever invite me to church. I think my parents sent us to like vacation Bible school or something when we were younger, but we didn't go to church as a family until this time. And she invited me to church, and uh, I decided I was going to get baptized, you know, at, at 14, almost 15 years old. And when I got baptized at that time, uh, my little brother got baptized, my sister got baptized, mm. and my mom got baptized. So all four of us got baptized at the same time. So that's one really positive memory. But I was going to church for the wrong reasons. This girl invited me. So obviously I was there to meet girls. And uh, But as you, you know as well as I do, there was a seed planted, yeah. uh, a, a foundation that was planted inside of me, and, and I'm really grateful for that. But I was going to that church where I've been going – faithfully you know wednesday night every wednesday night and and sundays for i know a good three months solid and we were we were definitely uh as a family we were coming a little bit closer together it was less arguing uh things started to change a little bit i still wasn't getting the attention but other things were starting to starting to happen in my life and i didn't really pay much attention to them then but looking back you can kind of see how things kind of unfold where god was showing up right. we see what we see in the rearview mirror man exactly you don't see it when it's sitting right here you're down the road look back and go oh yeah that's what that was yeah and uh i went to church uh, it was a wednesday night i was seven it was a great week uh, track meets coming up i was getting getting ready to qualify for the city city championships mm-hmm. and track and uh showed up and uh you ever walk into a room and you just know something's wrong like you know you're about to get some bad news mm-hmm. and i walked into the room and it was like just so somber and dark and it was just this heavy weight and i knew i was about to get some bad news and people were huddled in little groups you know and crying and, and praying and 
and I'm looking around for Dana and I don't see her and I, and I look down this, this long hall and I see her mom and the youth pastor her mom's just got tears and she's holding tissues and her little brother's hanging on her mom's leg and and I'm looking around for Dana and then her mom and the pastor see me and they start walking towards me and I got this gut this feeling in my gut knot in my throat and I just knew I was about to get some bad news and uh, and then they walked uh they started walking towards me and I got fear so it started to just surround me like I just felt like I was in this big fear bubble I knew they were going to tell me something and uh, I said where's Dana I'm like Ricky you need to sit down and then I was like and at that I had never ever I didn't for some reason I didn't want to sit down I was scared I was like no nah, I'm good I was like just where's Dana and again, they tried to encourage me to sit down. I said, no. I said, just go ahead and tell me. I didn't want to be trapped, you know, because I'm a runner. You know, I don't like to feel feelings. And uh, so they proceeded to tell me that Dana was dead. And uh, it was like my best friend. Like, that girl cared enough about me to invite me to church. And... Uh, Found out she overdosed. At fifteen, fourteen years old, she overdosed, uh, inhaling freon gas mm. out of a plastic bag, and it froze her lungs. When they tried cardiac arrest, it wouldn't work because her lungs were frozen. God, dang. And it destroyed me. It flattened my whole world, and I got resentful towards God. I got resentful towards church. I got resentful towards women. I was angry at her. You know, why would you do that and not tell me about it? Like, I hadn't come to find out. Later on, I found out she and her mom had gotten in an argument that day. And the only thing she was trying to do is be high enough to embarrass her mom at church. Hmm. And she ended up killing herself. And I didn't take it good. My school grades dropped. Uh, I, I, I just went into this real, real dark place. But for some reason, these people in this church were trying to help me. And they were trying to get me to hang out with them and do things and stuff. And I was back and forth between wanting to do what, kind of kind of wanting to be closer to a mom and her mom, because her mom needed me. Uh, she wanted to know more about her daughter. And she was kind of leaning on me for support. And I didn't know how to, I, I didn't know how to support a, a, a mother. And her younger brother was looking up to me, and, and I didn't know what to tell this little five-year-old kid. And it was just so overwhelming. I turned away from all of it. And I started hanging around a pretty rough crowd. And uh, I would cuss at my parents and yell to get my way. Uh, like I said, my school grades dropped. And... Uh, I started doing this little thing called car hopping where, you know, you go down the street and check the car door handles, you know, to see what's in the car. And you go in and and uh, you get into their cassette tapes. And, yes, I'm old enough to know what cassette tapes are. But uh, we would, and we would just get at the end of the street and with no regard with these people and their stuff and their belongings. And we would just go through this bag, this garbage bag full of people's stuff. And we would discard stuff that that. These people obviously thought it had value, but we didn't think it was valuable. We thought we kept what we thought was valuable to us. We would split everything three ways, and we'd go hit the next block. You know, here I am, 15 years old, and I'm going to a dark place. And uh, that's my thing. I didn't shut my uh, 
I, I do not disturb my phone, but I don't do that. <laughs> but uh, computer. I was going. I, I knew. I knew what direction I was going, and my parents noticed too. They knew something was going on with Ricky, and I just didn't care. I stopped caring about everything. All I really wanted, what I wanted more than anything, was Dana back. And I didn't know how to voice that or express that. I didn't know how to deal with. I didn't know how to grieve properly. I didn't know none of that. And I, I did not understand drugs and alcohol. But at that time in my life, I said, I'll never, ever do drugs. Hmm. I made that firm resolution right there. Like, I could have I passed a lot of detector tests easily. I'm uh, never going to touch drugs and alcohol. About yeah. how old were you then? 15. 15. And uh, up to that point, I'd never had a drop of alcohol. I'd seen my parents drink and stuff, like little parties and stuff we'd go to over at my aunt's house, but I never had a desire to drink. I never had a desire to, to smoke uh, marijuana or, or do any of the drugs that the other kids were doing. Uh, really, really, it was never desirable to me. I wanted to be liked and stuff, but no, no one ever thought to, in, to, to invite me into those things. And why, hmm. I don't know. At this, I, I'm not going to ever try to try to figure that out. But right. It's one of those things I, I used to wonder about. but. Uh, but I was going, like I said, I was going on this bad path, you know, breaking into cars, staying out late past my curfew, cussing at my parents, fighting with my brother, my younger brother, uh, not getting along with my sister. My parents were just terrified. And my mom looked at my dad, and she said, he's going to end up in jail or dead. And my dad said, well, let's do something. And she said, what's that? And he goes, well, I'm out of the Marine Corps now. He said, uh, you know, I grew up in Kentucky. Why don't we just go back? Move. And she said, okay. And my dad was born in Mount Vernon, Kentucky. He's got... It was a baby of 10 kids. Mm. We used to come back and forth, you know, to Kentucky as, as kids, you know, visiting and stuff. And so I'd been to Kentucky several times. Uh, I never, ever thought we'd move here. And he's like, he called me and he's like, he was he had come to Kentucky to visit to check everything out. And I didn't know what was going on. And he called the house and he asked to speak to me. He goes, son, he said, I need your help. I said, what's that? He said, I'm going to have a U-Haul truck delivered to the house and you're going to start packing. I said, he said, I need you to help me get that truck loaded. And I said, what's going on? He said, I said, and he told me we're moving to Kentucky. And the idea of a fresh start really, it, it just, I was so happy. Yeah. Like I was like, finally. Like get me out of the city. Like I, I knew myself, I needed something, and I didn't know how to ask for it. And I was happy, and I was excited. And I, and then my dad to call me and, and ask me to do something. Like I took that responsibility pretty serious. So, so we packed everything up and we left and we moved uh, to Kentucky. Now we stayed with my grandmother who lives in Glasgow, Kentucky, or Barron County, mm-hmm. uh, for for the summer in 1991. And uh, Dad found us a house in this real small town. Uh, people, some of you may have heard of it, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Population of about five thousand five hundred people. And it was small. I didn't know nothing about being in the country. I didn't know nothing about rednecks because I didn't like them and they didn't like me. And they let me know about it real quick. And uh, but what happened when school started is uh, I arrived. Like, girls were paying attention to me. Nobody knew the nerd, the little freckle-faced right here kid with big ears from, that was a nerd, you know, growing up. Now it's just this, people saw this guy that knew how to dance, and he was outgoing, and he was, he was loud, and he was energetic. And 
all of it was a front because really deep down on the inside, I was, I was struggling hard with a lot of, a lot of personal issues and I didn't know how to express that. So my only outlet was dancing and being, you know, being loud and being entertaining and, and, uh, but it was enough and we got invited to this church and I got involved in the church youth group and got a girlfriend and everything was going great. Uh, uh, just, but when I tell you those two years of high school just flew by and it was still the same behaviors. It was still the 80% mentality. Hmm. I'm only going to do 80% because I still wanted people to like me. I wanted someone to actually love me. And the truth was, is more people loved me than I ever was willing to realize I didn't love me. I didn't know that that's what the problem was. Is I thought I needed all of this love. And I had so much love this whole time. My brother even loved me. My brother looked up to me and admired me. And I didn't know nothing about it. I didn't want to even not acknowledge him. And... uh so I barely graduated high school in 1993, and uh, you know I'm sitting there in the summer, and I'm, I have no plans. I don't know what I'm gonna do. And uh, I said, "Well, I guess I'm gonna go to the army." Hmm. You know, I, and most people have a plan or something for the military. It's something they usually dream about, and I took it for granted because you know I took the ASVAB. I had like the second highest score in the state, and I didn't oh. think that was a big deal, but evidently it was. And I, I got offered jobs from like the Air Force, from the Navy, uh, uh, the Marine. I never did talk to the Marine Corps um, because I had so many resentments against my dad. Yeah. And the way he brought us up, I wouldn't go to the Marines. But I'll try the other ones. But they're just as bad. I didn't yeah. realize. Yeah. You know, it had nothing to do with them being being a Marine. But yeah. they just uh, to wear different colors. <laughs> exactly. And uh, so I went to the Army, and. I'd like to tell you that I, that I went and told all my friends that I was going to the army and that I told them what I was going to be doing and I didn't, you know, I just, I left without telling anybody anything. Did and that was real selfish, you know, it was, uh, it was, it was horrible. And at the, up to this point, now that, there was some time in that time when I was running with those kids and stuff. I think I did get invited to like when I was in Virginia Beach before I moved to Kentucky. Like I said, I'm going to bounce a little bit, but. I got invited to this party once and they got me drunk on just beer. It was just beer. And they got me drunk and they put me in this chair, you know, this rocking chair. And I ate spaghetti before I went. I'll never forget this memory. It's funny. And they put me in this rocking chair and it's like, you're in a boat and you're out to sea. And they'd spin the chair around and they did it because they knew I was going to get sick because I'd never ever drank ever in my life. And I puked. And it was embarrassing. But I mean, it was crazy. Like it was funny, but it was embarrassing. But I was like, if this is what you're gonna, this is gonna happen when you drink. I don't want to do it no more. Hmm. So at that point, I didn't really swear off alcohol, but I just said I don't want to get drunk, you know. And uh, so fast forward, I get into the military. You know, I go fly through basic training. I go to go to my uh, Fort Eustis, Virginia, from to learn how to work on helicopters. Uh, I was there for like uh, six months, and then I found out you're going to Germany for two years. I was you talking about someone happy? Because I don't know if you know. But I knew that Jay had beer in Germany, and I wanted to try it. And so, and I, that's the only thing I was excited about. I had always wanted to try try German beer for mm-hmm. some reason. It just that was just the one thing in my mind I wanted to try. And uh, so when I got to, I uh, told everybody I was excited about it. And uh, during this time, though, I was seeing this girl. Her name was Renee, and I thought Renee and I were going to get married. I really did. I, this girl, 
uh, I didn't even tell her bye that I was going to basic training. I just kind of went. Mm. And finally, I just kind of told her. But in that same time, her and her family were moving to another part of Kentucky. And so it was, we were both going through a big move. And she probably needed me more than I realized. But I was never content, never happy with anything in my life. And so I didn't know what to tell her. And I took it for granted. This girl probably really did love me. And uh, and I and I really did. I, I think I loved her, but I was just... I was lost in a lot of ways. I had no direction. And uh, so she supported me going to Germany. She said she was going to wait for me. Mm. All of this other stuff, all these great big grand scheme, grand promises. And I'm like, okay, yes, I'm going to stay faithful. I'm not going to do anything crazy because I know what it's like over there. And I get over there, and the first thing that happens is God comes up to me. I mean, uh, I get off the – literally, I'm not even, I hadn't even gotten – 30 minutes off the plane this guy says you ever try German beer I was like no he says you want to I said yep and uh, three days later I woke up in a different part of Germany and I could have swore like I thought I was terrified I thought they're going to kick me out of the military he goes dude relax he said you're okay I said who are you he goes uh, I'm sergeant so and so he said oh, welcome to Illisheim Germany he said he said, just want you to know you're fine. He goes, we've just been kind of watching and keeping an eye on you. He goes, we give you two weeks to kind of adjust to the atmosphere here. He said, you're more than welcome to drink all the German beer you like. He said, it's part of the culture over here. He said, this is a different army. He said, he said, but you're here for two years. He said, you're going to go through a two-week improv. And started telling me all this stuff. And I said, wait a second. I said, there's no consequences. I'm not in trouble. He's like, no, you're not in trouble. He said, I just told you, we're going to give you a grace period to let you adjust mm. well I felt like that grace period lasted two years yeah. like because it was just two years of I like I said I was a helicopter mechanic so it was two years of a little bit of helicopter work and a lot of playing rugby and drinking beer because mm. I just I found out about this sport called rugby which I absolutely found out was awesome but uh but that's where I discovered alcohol and that's where my honeymoon period and now me and alcohol, we just started to develop a relationship. Consummated I, the relationship. Yeah. I mean, that was where it was at. Like it was just nonstop, like all the time, every German bar you can think of, we were trying to go to. Uh, we did a little bit of traveling while I was over there. I was grateful to be able to do that, but everything involved alcohol. Yeah. Everything involved. They brought beer out into the field. Yeah. While we were doing in the military, they're bringing cases of beer out there. Like that's how I accepted how well except that culture is over there yeah like it was just my brother was in the army and got stationed in frankfurt oh right on yeah, yeah. and i got i had the opportunity to go over in 92 okay went over and spent a couple of weeks with him so i got a little taste of it yeah i was there september september 94 through september 96 yeah yeah i think he was like 92 to 94 i think yeah and then uh strangest thing that probably would have been exactly right because he's yeah, if you were 74, he's a 72. Right on. And that would have rolled right yeah. through. I will tell you this. Uh, there was some embarrassment, and I like to tell this story because it's funny. Because, uh, you know, there was a time, and I think we all remember, if anyone who's been in recovery, there was a time when drinking was fun mm -hmm. before it gets bad, before we cross that invisible line. A lot and, of fun, man. And, uh, <laughs> man, we were playing, we were, we were, uh, playing rugby, man, and... And, and and rugby's a very uh, it, it's it's a full contact sport. It's like football and soccer combined with no pads. And this is the one I was having one of the best games of my life. 
they tried to rip the top of my ear off, end up having to get stitches there. My mm. eye was black. My two of my rib ribs got bruised. I had scored like three times during the game. Like I thought this is the greatest thing ever. Like and 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 the the insanity of it. And I knew what I loved about about rugby is that both teams go to the bar together after the match and drink together. Like it's the only sport in the world that has that much camaraderie, you know? And I thought, oh man, I'm going to get to go to a bar. And the guys come up to me and like, hey man, you scored your first try. What well, try was like a t- was like a touchdown. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, you got to do a Zulu. I said, well, what is a Zulu? And they're like, well, you got to run around the field naked. I said, it's 40 degrees outside. Well, if you don't do the Zulu, you don't get to go to the bar. I've never in my life ever taken my clothes off so fast. And uh, I ran around that field naked and I got laughed at. And I don't like being laughed at. You know, I grew up being laughed at. But it involved alcohol you know and i was going to do i was going to go to any length yeah. any length to get another one i'd have done it and uh that wasn't where it ended uh i'm gonna take this story a little bit further i don't normally tell this but i'm gonna tell this uh so i thought the zulu was done so i go and I, they're like all right everybody get together i mean we a lot of people everybody just puts their uniforms on keeps their uniforms on and everybody goes to the bar and we go to this bar we all start drinking and stuff and they're like, Rick, you ready to finish your Zulu? I was like, what do you mean? I just ran around the field naked. Oh, that's just the beginning. And, uh, oh, God, this is horrible. They had me stand up on the table, and they pulled my pants all the way down to my ankles. And and they ran around seeing and take them down Zulu Warrior. And everyone on both both teams, both teams got to come by, and everybody got to smack me on my, my ass once. Mm. Like, and they started singing this song, this chant, chanting this Zulu warrior song. And it was like, everybody thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I was like, what in the world am I doing? Like, I was really, really like, and it hurt. Like, I ain't gonna lie to you. Like, I couldn't sit down for like two days. But then after that, like, they come up, like they said, your drinks are free for the rest of the night. Because you got the Zulu, so everybody was bringing me shots and beer. Like I thought it was the best thing ever. Like I'm like it's worth it. Yeah, it's worth you know, it. It's worth it. This embarrassment and stuff is worth it, and I, I'll never forget that uh, uh, ever. It, it was horrible. It was really, really horrible. And but that was it was so accepted over there. Like it was that 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 lifestyle. And I didn't see. I think the whole time that I was in Germany, I seen, maybe seen a few fights like over drunkenness like that's how cool it was just to be able to drink so fast forward to 1996 october in october of 96 i got to come home for 30 days and visit and i got to go see this girl renee let me tell you what happened but let me back up a little bit because this is this was what kind of fed into my alcoholism a lot so in 90 in like i said germany was two years of partying but it didn't really take off until new years of 1995 and what happened was is about I think it was early December 1994 I got a letter in the mail from one of Renee's best friends saying that she needed me to call her and it was in regards to Renee and so I, a long distance phone call from Germany pretty expensive it, yeah. uh, long distance phone calls are expensive so, so I call her and she proceeds to tell me that Renee is cheating on me and that she's met some other guy and I was crushed, and at that time I'd already been drinking, so my drinking escalated, and I started drinking uh, 
not only German beer, but I started to top that off with hard liquor. Um, New Year's, I drank myself into my first blackout. And I remember trying to puke through a screen. Like I thought the holes were big enough that the puke would just go outside and it ran all down my face and it was horrible. But uh, I needed to go back to come back up and say that because in 96, when I got to leave, to go on leave for 30 days before I went to my next duty station, which I'll tell you about in a minute, I wanted to go see her. I wanted, I wanted, I needed closure. I needed to know why. You know, I wanted to know why. And she never could tell me. But she wanted to see me as bad as I wanted to see her. Hmm. And she had the audacity to try to introduce me to her boyfriend. Oh, yeah. And so I, this buddy of mine that I knew was going to be stationed with me, I was like, you're going with me. I said, you need to make sure I don't do anything stupid and get arrested. Because the last thing I wanted to do was go to jail. And I seen this guy. And I, and I, and I looked at him, and he looked like he could barely hold his head up off the, dad, off the, off the steering wheel. He was nodding. Mm. And I'm just like, oh, no. And I just kind of put two and two together. I said, I know if he's doing it, she's probably doing it too. And I said, uh, I, I just didn't stay long. But I didn't get the closure that I wanted. But I figured, you know what? Maybe God's got something better in mind because I know that's he doesn't want me to be around that. And uh, so I went to my first, my next duty station, which was Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Hmm. Fort Campbell, Kentucky, 101st, 7th Battalion, 101st, uh, very well known. Uh, Battalion uh, or regiment, uh, a lot of people know about them from World War II and stuff, but uh, a lot of history there. But what happened to Fort Campbell was very unfortunate. Um, so the army over in, in, in Germany or overseas is is it's kind of like when you go to if you go to Iraq and anybody will tell you this, it's a very tight knit group. Like everyone's close. I mean, you you don't ever have to worry about your buddy getting your back, no matter what it is. If it's money, if it's family problems, if it's a fight, whatever the situation might be, going out drinking, everybody was a family over there. Yeah. I got to Fort Campbell, and it was gone. And and I was confused, because I thought that my whole military life was gonna be like this, because my family, my normal family wasn't like that. We weren't tight like that. So, and, and I needed that bond. And when I got to Fort Campbell, it wasn't there. And so I started to look for outlets. This is so funny. I started to look for outlets for fun, and I stand up, start these guys start telling me, "Hey man, you need to go to the go-go bar." It's like, "What's the go-go bar?" And they're like, "Well, it's like a strip club, except they don't take off their panties." So it's like, "So they go topless?" Is what you're telling me? Yeah. I said, "Well, what do y'all do there?" Like, we go there to watch Monday Night Football. I was like, "That's confusing, but I don't know how you focus on football." But okay, let's go. And so we would go there, and what I found out is they loved military men so much because they knew they had a guaranteed paycheck mm. that they would give us free pictures of beer. And all we had to pay for is like if we wanted a lap dance or so on and so forth, but they would give us free pictures of beer. And that was the only reason everybody went. And so then I found out on Friday nights they had a freestyle rap contest, and I was intrigued by that because I like rap music. And so I was kind of going – I've been going for a couple of weeks, and one night – I left there. I left early. I was kind of tired. And it was on a Friday night. And I was going back to the barracks, which is where we live at. Kind of a big apartment complex, yeah. I guess. And I'm going into the barracks. And I walk past these guys' room. And I hear this freestyling stuff going on. Because now I've heard a little bit of it in, in this go-go bar. I recognize the sound of it. And I kind of peek my head in the door. And they drug me into the room. They're like, you got to try it. I'm like, try what? And I said, they're like, you got to try a freestyle. I said, no, 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 no. I said, I can dance. I said, but I can't. I, I, I said, don't you see? I'm a white guy. I don't, I don't rap. Like, come on, man. Try it. I'm like, all right. So I tried it. And they laughed at me. 
And so that memory of that dance, going to that dance and doing the tw- not being able to do the twist, yeah, cover co- came into my mind. So I went out and I bought back then. This is like in the '90s, and you could get the cassette tape, a single song on a cassette tape. And the song will be on one side, and you flip on the other side, and it's the instrumental version of that song. And so I got some Bone Thugs and Harmony cassettes, and uh, I taught myself how to rap. And like I would start like with the cat, the things like uh, like cat, and I would go cat, hat, bat, rat, sat, and then I was you know I could do dog, dog, fog on a log. I mean, and I would just keep going and trying to learn how to rhyme these words, and then I started putting them in sentences and trying to start making sense and rhyming. And I was watching and and studying all these other artists like Eminem and and uh, and I've been listening to rap music pretty much since it probably came out but you know as well as you know other music I, I like all genres of music but for some reason rap music always resonated with me and so I taught myself how to freestyle so I went back to those guys after I'd you know mastered what I thought I had mastered my craft I thought I was pretty good and I went back and uh, and I challenged them I was like I think I can get you and they're like okay alright so they got everybody together in this room and there's probably 20 people in there and I went around in the room and I, and I pretty much attacked like 20 people at the same time and I started rapping about everybody and they were so blown away like I got them like I got them pretty good and they were so blown away by how how good I got in such a short amount of time like we're taking you to the go-go bar for Friday you're going to enter the rap contest and I won $300 nice and uh, so they they said okay we got to we got to keep this going and so Fort Campbell is on uh, the Kentucky and Tennessee line so part of it's like right real close to Hopkinsville Kentucky and the other parts near Clarksville Tennessee and Clarksville Tennessee is a very happening uh, sub uh, on the outlets outskirts of Nashville about 20 miles from Nashville, so the music scene is amazing, and there's a lot of uh, local talent, a lot of producers. Um, you know, Memphis is right down the street. There's a big rap, you know, kind of following down in there, and uh, there's actually a bigger. Uh, bigger rap following in Nashville than what most people realize. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's a bigger Christian rap following in Nashville. Uh, you know, Toby Mac and all of those guys. But um, So anyway, uh, I, I got real popular. I got real well-known because they were taking me to these rap contests and I didn't win all of them, but I won a lot of them. And this one major one that I went to was huge. There was like a lot of like actual artists there. Um, and they were judging the contest and I got second place and this guy came up to me and he's like he said you got a shot he said you're going to be good well at the same time that all this is going on obviously and most people listening may have know that you know freestyling usually is comes with uh, smoking weed and uh, how that came about uh, let me back up just a little bit to tell you how that happened I was rapping a lot at that go-go bar on the Friday nights and a lot of times it was just people just wanted to hear me. I wouldn't enter the contest because they knew I was going to win. So they would just let me get up there and kind of freestyle, and I would do it. And I would, like, either rap about the girls or rap about my buddies or something funny. And uh, this particular night, these three girls come up and ask me for a ride home. And I don't know about any other single man in America, but if when, no, three, no. when three strippers ask you for a ride home and you're single. Sorry, and you're girls. Brand, yeah, I was not going to say busy. no. So here I am in my brand new, you know, 1990 uh, Nissan 240SX. And uh, I was like, yeah, I'll give you guys a ride. And we didn't get a mile from the club. And this girl puts this little glass pipe up against my mouth. And she's like, inhale real slow. And uh, I've never in my life ever felt so calm and so relaxed. 
like from ever I mean ever like it, it was suddenly life just slowed down and I'm real I have a lot of anxiety and I, I'm very very hyper and I wasn't all of a sudden I just didn't and then I didn't care what people thought I didn't care about impressing nobody about friends or nothing I just felt exactly what I needed to be feeling at that moment and uh, I would like to tell I didn't get addicted to weed uh, I was I was in agreement with people on that like I don't think that weed is addictive I think maybe the behaviors and the lifestyle could can be but for me it wasn't addictive I just enjoyed it uh, but uh, when I rapped I found out that or freestyle I found out that I was better because I didn't care what I said and I, I got more I was able to be more aggressive and uh, and it was used as a kind of used that as an excuse to smoke per se and uh it's a performance I, enhancer yeah and well when i went to that contest that rap contest and i got second place and this, these guys were telling me that you're gonna go far i thought man i need to do something different maybe i'm, I'm here i am i'm a, i'm a soldier in the united states army and helicopter mechanic i need to clean myself up so i can really get this record deal you know and uh, i started i had this you know there's a moment of clarity that we get you know you need to, you need to slow down you need to check yourself and so I was sitting in the barracks and I had two uh, two joints and a cigarette pack already already rolled. Now I will tell you this, I never ever, even to this day, I don't know how to roll a joint. Uh, and that was my way of being able to control how much I smoked. And so I figured if I know how to roll it, I'm gonna smoke it all the time. Mm-hmm. And that was the lie that I would tell myself. And because uh, whenever I was around people that did it, I wanted it. But I never, to this day, I still don't know how to twist up a joint. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've watched it, people have shown me a hundred times. I've seen. My brother rolled one one time. It was almost like two foot long, and you know, yeah. But I mean, but I've never. And still to this day, I can't. Huh. I don't know how to roll. Crazy. And uh, I smoked a whole lot of it, for sure. But yeah. and they don't even roll joints anymore. I don't think. Right. <laughs> but uh, so uh, so yeah, that um, I wanted to clean up, and I had these two joints in my cigarette pack, and I was going to take them to this girl named April. I was like, you know, instead of throwing us away, this stripper would really, really like to have these two joints, you know. And I was really trying to just get in there, you know. That's you know, I'm sick. You know, I I I wanted what I wanted at that time and my motives were not in the right place. And uh I was on my way off base and they had this thing called Operation Eagle. And what they do is they pick random cars that are leaving uh, as the MPs are set up, they got the you know, these little cones set up. You don't have no idea what it is until you get to it. And uh, unless you've been through it before and uh, they talk take random cars and pull over and they search your car with the dogs. I knew just as soon as I passed the first MP and made that turn, I said, oh, my God. I said, what am I? I didn't say, oh, my God. I said, oh, shit. What yeah. am I going to do? I was trying to be nice and not cuss, but I said, oh, shit. And uh, I said, and I, so I tried. So I immediately was looking in the car, and I was like, I'm going to do it. I took those two joints out of that cigarette pack, and I shoved them in my mouth, and I started chewing. Good and thinking. I'm looking, and it got dry. It got, my mouth got dry real quick. And I started looking around the car, and I didn't have nothing to drink. So negative, just big mouthful of chewing tobacco. Man, it was horrible. I didn't know what I was going to do because I know I was going to have to spit this stuff out. And I'm I'm walking up and I get up there and, and I'm chewing. And I'm like, what do you got in your mouth? And I couldn't lie. I was like, Phew. I just spit it out in the dog. You know, his dog stuck his nose in it. His tail popped up in the air, you know, and I was popped. You know, it knew immediately what it was. And I was like, I'm done. And uh, I was right. 
they took me down back to the MP station and started drilling me and asked me where I got the drugs from. And they wanted to know everything with everything. I thought I would, they thought maybe he knows all the drug dealers and just said, so I get the soldiers high. And it was crazy and it was scary. And then the next morning, I was informed that they gave me an Article 15 and they kicked me out of the United States Army. I mean, they, obviously, they, they punished me for a couple of weeks and tried to embarrass me. They knocked me down from E4 all the way to E nothing. Mm-hmm. They took half my, pay, half my pay for two months. They stri- restricted me the base. Uh, my car ended up getting repoed. It was horrible. Yeah. And uh, on April the 15th of 1998, my mom came and picked me up in her minivan. And it was very, very embarrassing. Yeah. I didn't hear nothing from my dad for a while. I told you he's a 20-year Marine Corps vet. Right. Uh, Viet- Marine, Marine vet, Vietnam vet. And... Uh, was it was it a dishonorable discharge? It was not. Not. It was other than honorable. Less than honorable. I got lucky. Other, other, than, than, other than honorable was the discharge. I don't really know I too much about that, but I had uh, a guess not long what ago. They tried, what they did was they tried to say that they had given me a previous drug test. The Army does this. It's kind of sneaky and it's shady, but they tried to say that I failed a previous drug test, and there was no proof of that, obviously, but the Army can do what they want. Mm-hmm. And they tried to say they got me down for a pattern of misconduct. And if they get you for a pattern of misconduct, then they can get to where you can't re-enlist into the United States Army. And that's what they did to me. Hmm. They threw the book at me. They made an example out of me. That's what they did. And uh, and I deserved it. You know, I knew the rules and I broke it. Like I, was, I was a helicopter mechanic. I was putting people's lives in danger. Uh, and uh, But I had no regard because I was selfish. And, uh, yeah, and... So here, my mom's coming to pick me up, and I'm not, I'm going to move back in with my parents, you know, after serving my country for four and a half years. That was real, real, it was not a really proud moment in my life. And my dad's like, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to get a job. He's like, all right. And he knew I meant business. I went, I was going to get a job for sure. And I didn't know what else to do. So I went to McDonald's. Yeah, I went to McDonald's. You know, I mean, I didn't know what to do. So I went to McDonald's and Start because of because of my military training and because of was highly motivated. Uh, I didn't I was disciplined. Uh, you didn't have to stand over top of me and tell me what to do. Uh, they saw that, you know, they saw my drive and my enthusiasm. And they offered me management right away. Hmm. And so I became a shift manager at McDonald's and uh, I did very, very well there for about six months because yeah. I was still smoking weed. I was still acting a fool. I still had no direction. I still had no plans. I still had no goals, nothing. I was still people-pleasing. Uh, I was still trying to be a rapper. Uh, I, but I would never commit to anything. It was always do like, just enough. And there, well, I wasn't even an 80% guy then. Then I was probably just a 10%. Hmm. And uh, I was blowing my money left and right. I couldn't save a penny if you if you asked me to. And So I went from there to being a manager of a, a store a, shift manager at Long John Silver's. And uh, there I did so well. They thought I was doing so well. This is all in Lawrenceburg. I was doing so well at that, they opened up a food court, this Hamburg Pavilion in Lexington. Uh, they had brand new food court. It had like a, uh, there was a Burger King, it was a pizza place, and there was a Long John Silver's. And they asked me to run the Long John Silver's, this hmm. brand new place. And I was like, yeah. And so I moved just like that. Got me an apartment in, Le- in Lexington. And uh, I stopped smoking weed for a while, and I got this job. But, you know, just because I stopped smoking, like, you know, I wasn't drinking on a regular basis every now and then, but I was still, those those same behaviors was still with me. 
when I went to Lexington. You know, I was still trying to people please. I was still trying to fit in. I still couldn't save money. I could barely pay my bills. Like I was literally living check to check. I don't even know how I kept that apartment for as long as I did. And uh, I decided one night I was going to have this party. And uh, I invited my brother. He had just gotten out of jail. You know, I told you he's one of us. Uh, I'm not going to tell his whole story, but he had gotten out of jail. And I invite him over to this party. And there's girls and there's guys and everything's great. Well, we get a noise ordinance, ordinance call to the police. And my brother's terrified. And so he jumped. I'm on the third floor. So he jumped from my third floor balcony and ran up to the Kroger's and called my mom to come pick him up. And she come and got him. But I got busted and I almost went to jail for uh, contributing to the delinquency of a minor. But she, uh, her parents didn't press charges. Because she told them that I wasn't the one that got the alcohol mm. when I clearly was the one that got the alcohol. But, uh, yeah, that was like it was like an ominous warning. Like, I need to stop. You know, I need to do something. And uh, so I took a little break, a little hiatus from there it for a while. periods of sobriety. And, uh, and I, actually, I actually ended up leaving that job. Like, I was miserable in that job. Uh, I didn't like it. I thought it was a dead-end job. And I, just, and I decided at that time I'm going to go work. I'm gonna go do a three week bid at Keeneland Racetrack, and I call it a bid because it feels it's horrible. It's like seasonal work. It's like mm. 17 hours a day, horrible pay. But I go work at Keeneland, and that's where I met Martha, my first wife. And she was I was flirting with her friend, and she was flirting with me. Her friend didn't know what nothing to do with me, but she did, and so it was really sick how it all ended up. But I ended up marrying that girl, mm. and uh, we stayed married for five years and I can honestly tell you uh, which I'm sad sad to say I didn't love her I I only married her because her dad said we should probably get married and he was uh, and I was I was happier about her parents because of how much they tried to be family orientated and it was that as that family structure that I wanted Hmm. Martha was uh, uh, someone who she wanted to be married but she didn't know how to be a wife and she was young i mean she was 17 years old mm. and her parents were like yeah y'all get married i'm 25 you know and and here we are like i don't have any clue about how to be a husband or nothing and she's uh she's too young to know how to be a wife and you know it was just it was just a mess you know and of course my alcoholism and but i had, i swore off drinking for those five years mm. uh, i started going to church every sunday with her parents her dad used to sing in the church and stuff and it was great and, and, and i thought everything was fine but i woke up one day and i realized i wasn't happy i didn't love this girl and so i did the coward's thing i cheated i i, I cheated on her like i thought maybe i can get the satisfaction i need by doing it another way and I and I cheated on that woman and I broke her heart and uh, I didn't know what was going to happen so we split up obviously we didn't get divorced right away um, but we split up for about I think it was about 19 or 20 months we split up and then we decided we were going to give it another shot and we lasted for about about two in it but she wanted to renew our vows you know she wanted to do it right so we renewed our vows uh, this whole time that we were split up, though, she was living with another man. Hmm. And, I, of course, I'm out doing my thing or whatever. But And it bothered me. And so when we got back together, I would hold that over her head. And uh, I would go drink every once in a while with the guys from work, but not like I used to. And uh, I was working for Asplen Tree Service Company. Uh, let me back up. When I met Martha, though, let me, let me back up. When I met Martha... 
in 2000, year 2000, uh, we were, I was in between jobs, I didn't know what I was going to be doing, and we went over to the girl, the, I told you that I was in, I, I wanted to get with her friend. Well, her friend was her best friend, you know, we went over to her house one night to play cards, and her boyfriend asked me, he's like, hey, you ever climb trees? I'm like, no. He's like, well, he goes, I know you can wear a job where you can make $17 an hour. I said, where do I go? He said, just come with me Monday to work. So in 2000, that's when I started climbing trees for a living. Uh, actually, I worked there for about three weeks before I ever climbed my first tree. But after I climbed my first tree, I fell in love with it. Uh, and I've been climbing trees ever since. I've been climbing trees for like 22 years. I need to mention that in my story because there's a, there's a big reason why. But so fast forward, though, um, we get back together uh, after the 20-month the, the 20 break. And... Um, I still don't, I know I don't love her. I'm only with her because I don't want to be alone. And uh, so I did it again. I didn't exactly cheat, but I, but I pretty, should, pretty much should have been. I was hanging around other girls. I stayed the night at this other chick's house. I swear on a stack of nothing happened with this other girl, but the fact that I was there, not with my wife, it was took that way. And uh, yeah, when you're married, you really don't get to go spend a night with no, other women. No. <laughs> Uh, so we ended up finally went up, went ahead and went through the divorce process. So that was a sabotage. The the cheating was to sabotage yeah. it, yeah. to yeah, make it, it fail, so I could get right. out because I exactly. can't just go it was say, a, it was an "Hey, easy baby, way out. I don't love you. I want out." Right? It was a coward's way out. It really was. It was cowardly and selfish. And um, but I, 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 after we finally got divorced, after we tried the second time, and we we decided finally we're going to get divorced. I thought I had this grand idea. You know how we are grand idea i'm gonna go back to school to be an aircraft mechanic so my parents were like yeah go ahead go for it that's a good idea you know and everyone supported me and and i was like all right so i packed up my car and i headed up to indianapolis and i went to the aviation institute of maintenance Hmm. and i couldn't really support i had to pay for for some part of school i was there uh, and also had to pay for a place to live so i got me a small job at mcdonald's and that's where I met Amber, my second wife. Hmm. Uh, Amber uh, was uh, considerably younger than me, 12 years younger than me. And uh, I used her for just to fill a hole. I took advantage of her kindness and and uh, I just wanted someone there. That's all it was. And uh, I uh, told her that she couldn't drink and she couldn't smoke pot so she quit smoking pot and she cleaned herself up and uh, I told her if we were going to date it needed to be that way because I was going to be an aircraft mechanic and aircraft mechanics can't do drugs <laughs> and uh, and so we uh, so she did that she changed everything she she totally cleaned herself up and we got an apartment like after like two months like it, everything went super super fast and uh, about four months in she comes to me and says I'm pregnant mm. and I said it's not mine and she's like, what? Like, she was horrified. I was like, no. I said, I was married for five years to the same woman. I said, if we try, if I couldn't get her, there's no way. I'm sterile. No, it's not mine. And she swore up and down. It was my son. And uh, and he is. He's my son. There's no way I can deny him. If you see him today, he said, it's the best thing ever happened to me. But at the time, like, I just didn't. I just denied it because really and truly I was scared. Yeah. You know? And uh, I knew that that dynamic was going to change. And at the same time that she got pregnant, uh, my mom calls from Lawrenceburg, and my mom was diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And so I had a decision to make. 
I was sitting here in school. I was not really interested, honestly. I mean, I was doing great. I was probably going to pass. Uh, I was on the dean list, dean's list by any means, but I was doing really good as an aircraft mechanic in school. And I probably would have had my certification and been making really, really good money right now. But uh, I wasn't interested. And uh, so I made a decision. I was going to quit school and be a father and be a good son and go sit with my mom while she goes through cancer. And so we packed everything up and we left Indianapolis and I uprooted this girl from her roots and for home, from everything that she knew and I took her to a, and we went and moved in with my parents. Mm. Uh, we didn't get married right away, uh, but I was, I, I don't know what I was thinking at the time, but I thought this girl's pregnant with my son and I said, I need to do the right thing. You know, and it started to make, so the only reason I really married her was because she was pregnant. I didn't love her enough to marry her. Uh, I still didn't love myself. Like I said, I only started dating her because I didn't want to be alone. And uh, and I hurt that girl. I harmed that girl. I drug her. I took her hostage for three years, mm. three and a half years. And within in four years, we had three kids. Wow. Uh, Christopher, Constance, and Charity. And it was very, very toxic. Uh, I started, I get back, went back into the tree work. Uh, I started drinking again. I started smoking. I started uh, taking pills every now and then. Uh, so my, my alcoholism, though it was on the back burner, you know, people say, well, you're, my, my disease is over there doing push-ups, this, that, and the other. I don't say that. I say me. It was me. It was my mind. It was, it was, it was me thinking I need to get to another level of, of, of being able to bury all this stuff that I don't want to feel. And, uh, the weed wasn't doing it and the alcohol wasn't doing it. And I knew that there was something. There was something. I needed something. There's something out there that's going to help me. And I knew that. I just didn't know what that was. Uh, I didn't like pills. I didn't like being down. I was a fast upper guy. But after four years, four and a half years of being in that marriage and being miserable and not, and, uh, and, and knowing the part that I played is that, that I harmed her. I took, I took advantage of her. I wasn't the father I needed to be. I decided I was going to take our tax return and leave. And so I left. Hmm. I took our tax return. I moved into a hotel up in uh, Columbus, Indiana. Uh, at first, I lived with her dad for two weeks, which is stupid. I thought I was going to go live with her dad and try to find us a place to stay. I stayed there for two weeks, and then I found a hotel room. We got in a hotel room, and I got on these websites called BeNaughty.com, which is what you, you know. It's pretty obvious what you're going to do on those websites. And I met up with this chick, and we ended up hooking up. And make a long story short. One day she took my car and she was gone for like six hours. I said, where do you go with somebody's car for six hours? She goes, you're going to be mad. I said, I'm already mad. It's like, you just took my car for six hours. And she said, well, if I tell you, you're going to be mad. You're going to be, I said, just tell me. So she finally told me, she goes, I was getting high. I was like, cool, let's go. She said, really? I said, yeah. I said, what were you doing? She goes, oh, I can't tell you that. I said, no, tell me what you were doing. She goes, well, I was smoking crack. I said, cool. How bad can it be? You know, I mean. I had no idea. And I, I went to this house, and I never thought about the consequences. I never thought about movies I'd seen about crack or the rumors I'd heard about how bad it can get. Well, it wouldn't happen uh, to you. No. It won't happen to me. No, I'm bulletproof. And uh, for three years, I had a love affair with crack cocaine. And when I say that, like it was either I, I either wanted crack cocaine or I wanted sex. And that was it. I didn't care about my kids. I didn't care about paying bills. I didn't care about keeping a job. It was horrible. And so... That's a couple pretty good, pretty effective escapes. Sex yeah. and crack. Yeah. 
you won't worry yeah. about your problems when you're doing either of those or both. Right, because you only think of yourself. And uh, so that led to, ended up, I, we didn't get the, Amber and I didn't get divorced. And she wanted me back. She wanted me back something awful. But I didn't, I didn't love her. And I didn't have the heart to tell her I didn't love her. I was a coward. I wanted my kids. I wanted my kids. I loved my kids. I was a good father. Like, I was there for every one of their births. Uh, I cut, cut the cord for Krista with Christopher. Uh, my two girls, uh, both of them were born with a quarter wrapped around their neck. I thought mm. I was going to lose my crap over that because I thought it was their, the doctor's fault. Mm. Uh, and but, but I was there for every birth, and I changed diapers, and I fed my kids, and I played with my kids. And it was, it was just I, I was trying to be the father that my father wasn't. And when she wasn't the wife that I wanted her to be, let me rephrase that. She wasn't the wife that I wanted her to be. And like, that's why I left. And uh, there's another, you know, there's more to that, but uh, it's probably not the time or place. But, but, but I had to look at, I had to look at my part. You know, the program taught me to look at my part. And honestly, I was just, I just never loved myself enough to be in love with anybody. And I wasn't, I didn't deserve what she had to offer, really and truly. And I was trying to control everything. I had to be in control. That was my safety net because mm -hmm. how dare she's going to hurt me like Renee did. And uh, the bottom line was is that I thought every woman that I met, everyone that I met was always compared to Renee hmm. because she broke my heart. You know, Renee, she cheated on me. You know, I was over in Germany, and I carried that for a lot of resentment into every single relationship that I went into. And so I didn't trust women. I thought they were going to leave me, and I didn't want to be left. So I'm going to leave you first before you. I'm going to hurt you before you hurt me. And that, and that was very, very hard to admit, you know, going through my four-step and stuff, but it was the truth. But uh, so my parents tried to intervene, and the church tried to intervene, and everyone was trying to help me. And I had these little bitty periods after those three years of, of trying to trying to get some help. I would I went to, like, a one-week, like, like treatment-like thing, and it was a joke. Like, they didn't have the 12 steps or nothing, no, no, no spiritual help. They thought it was like, like a psychiatric approach. And I told them, I told them you're not going to talk to me that way <laughs> pretty much because I knew everything. You know, I'm a know-it-all. And uh, so I left that, and, and I kept playing with the thing. And I kept making all these firm resolutions I was going to stop. And then I got back with that girl, Teresa. And we moved to Lexington, trying to maybe a geographical change will help. And we were, I was living on Nicholsville Road, and I remember this night. It was like it was, like it was last night. Like where I said we just got done getting high, and my phone rings, and Amber's hysterical, and she's crying, and she's like, "Constance just drowned. You got to come to the children's hospital." And so I'm freaking out. I'm geek. I'm, I'm I'm coming down from crack cocaine. You know, my eyes are bugged out of my head, and I'm like, "I gotta do something." So I. I stop everything I'm doing. I tell Teresa what's going on. I get in my car and I run down to UK Children's Hospital. I get down there and, and, and Amber meets me outside and she's like, da, 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 you know, running off in the mouth. You got to change. You got to do better. So I need to see my daughter. I got to go down there and I'm trying to tell this woman that I, that I got this, this entitlement going through me. Like I deserve to see this girl. And I really don't. She didn't have to call me. I didn't deserve to be there. But she wanted me to see my daughter and uh, it was very 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 thoughtful and loving of her to be able to call me like that you know and and so I said can I please see Constance she said yes 
and she told me which way to go and then I walked down this glass hallway and you know you, you all the rooms are glass where you can see inside of it. And, and at the very end of the hallway I see all these doctors and these nurses around this little girl and, and she sees me before I see her hmm. and and she reaches up her arms and she says daddy you know and uh, it I stopped I stopped halfway down that hallway I couldn't I couldn't go any further you know I was, I felt like such a horrible dad at that moment, you know, and I could have swore on a stack of Bibles right then. I was, I'd been like, I'm done. Like, I don't want to ever smoke crack again. And I like to tell you that that, that was what it, that was what it did. And as soon as I got back to that house, she had what I needed. And it, a couple of months later, my parents, Teresa and I had split up for whatever reasons and I was really trying to do better, and I think I'd, I'd been clean for about six weeks. And uh, Amber and I got in an argument over the kids and over me helping and this, that, and the other. And I was working at this frank, this factory, and I decided, you know what, I can't deal with this no more. My emotions got the best of me. And at this time, my, tr- my dad and the church went half and half in this hotel room, and they put me in a sh- this hotel room in Lawrenceburg, tried to help me get cleaned up. Until, they just, until I decided what I was going to do. Well, I had had enough of Amber talking to me and talking to me slick and telling me what she was, what I was or wasn't going to do. And that's Friday. I got my check, my last check, because I already knew it was going to be my last check because I was missing too many days at the factory because I would oversleep and, and just didn't want to go in because I didn't there really wasn't a job that I wanted, so I didn't take it serious enough. And my absenteeism got me fired. It was my own fault. And... When I got that last check, and I called the dope man, and I told him what I wanted, and I went to this this bar or this club, not to eat, but I ordered a Long Island iced tea while I was waiting for the dope man to tell me it was ready. And before I even had that Long Island iced tea drink, I was calling the dope man back, and I done doubled up my, my order. And so he gave me what I wanted, and I went, and went to the Motel 6 in Lexington, Kentucky, and I got a room. I had a hotel room in Lawrenceburg. That was being paid for. But because I didn't want anybody to see me, because I wanted it to be a big secret, I went into the Motel 6 and I destroyed that room. I smoked I smoked crack and didn't do nothing nothing but smoke for about three and a half hours. But after that, I tore that room apart hmm. trying to find what I lost. And I probably owe that place on amends today because it was, it was crazy. But somehow, the next morning when I woke up, I was back in Lawrenceburg. My car, the, the back driver's side tire on my car, the tire was flat. I had four dollars and change to my name, somehow. I don't know how, because normally you just, you know, when you're doing drugs, you just go spend every penny. I had no cigarettes, so I wanted to go get some cigarettes. The store was in walking distance from the hotel. I was walking to the store to go get some cigarettes. I was looking at my phone. I said, I need to call my dad. I gotta get honest. And I said, Dad, I did it again. And he said, I'll call you back. So I got my cigarettes, went back to the hotel room. About 30 minutes later, he says, all right, son, you got two options. At this time, my brother had been going through the healing place. Mm-hmm. And uh, he had just finished the healing place. Or, and uh, So my dad, my brother, my mom, and my still, still wife, because I'm still legally married, all decided for me that these are my two options, that I could go to Eastern State Mental Hospital or I could go to the healing place. 
And I said, well, if you'll let me see the kids, I'll go to the healing place. I'm bar so bargaining and trying to control everything. Yeah. But they agreed. And I got to see my daughter, my, my son and my two daughters for about an hour. And uh, I wasn't doing it. I was only doing it because I had nowhere else to go, you know. And so I went to the healing place. And that was on March the 9th of 2012. My ver- or it was my very first sobriety date. Hmm. And I, I went down to that program that six months. That was at the end that they just changed from a nine month or nine months to a year to six to nine months. And uh, I went to that program flawless. Like I did everything they said. I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a job. You know, I, I did everything that they said. They said, uh, you're going to trudge every day to class and, and, and you're going to do these chores. And, and if you get an issue, you're going to claim your issues. And, and I had a little issue with that. You know, I mean, I got some accountability held against me. But every, everything that they asked me to do, I did it. But keep in mind that I went through basic training in four years mm-hmm. in the Army. You know, maybe there was some some there's disruptiveness in there, and there was a lot of drinking and stuff. But I did what the army told me to do too. When they told me to march, I marched, and when they told me to point my gun and shoot, I point my gun and shoot. So it was no different when I got to the healing place. I can follow good orderly directions yeah, I for can a little take bit. Take directions. I can take directions for a little bit. I mean, it's only six months, right? So I got out of the healing place. Oh, I finished the healing place. I was still living on property for about a month and I was working at this horrible factory. I won't mention any names because I think it's not, I won't talk about this business like that. But it was, I was making about $7.25 an hour and my, one of my bosses called me and he said, offer me a job back doing tree work. And I was like, yeah, $17 an hour. Yeah, yeah I'll take it back. And so I got a $17 an hour job. My dad told me I could have my car back. So I got my car back. Mm. And then this guy, that knew me from the program was like, hey, would you mind, how would you feel about running my halfway house? Seven months over. So, everything got, I got everything back too fast. I got in this halfway house and I started holding people accountable left and right. Even my brother lived, moved in there for a while hmm. and I had to kick him out for not paying his rent. My own brother, you know. But I was doing what I thought was the right thing and I was holding everybody accountable except for me. And my behaviors caught up with me. And uh, I started dating this chick from the healing, women's healing place. That lasted for about a month until I found out she had another boyfriend. And so then I got resentful again. I started going back. So I went back to what I knew. I went back to those dating websites and I started harming women. Uh, uh, and I hurt a couple of those women pretty bad because they probably really, really liked me. Uh, and I probably had never met a guy that ever, you ever treated them right because I treated them right long enough to get what I wanted. And I hurt them. And I'm not proud of that. But then one got a hold of me. That boomerang that comes back in flight and cuts you to rim. It's, well, it's not just alcohol. Any of those behaviors. And I, and I believe that with my whole heart. That I deserved what I got. And I met a girl and she, she tore me up. And what happened was in March, in February of 2013, uh, I called my mom to tell her I was going to be celebrating my year. And... Uh, at this time, my mom had, was dying from cancer, and uh, she didn't tell anybody. She went to the pastor, and she told him that she was ready to meet the Lord, and that she didn't want to tell anybody that she was going to stop fighting. She was going to stop getting chemo. After seven years of fighting, she was done. Mm. And uh, so she opted to stop taking chemo and to just go on and let give it to God and trust God. And it was... My my dad and my ex-wife told me that was the most horrible thing that they had to watch. 
but my ex-wife was there for my mom hmm. you know and I've, I've i've since been able to talk to her about that but i wasn't there and i was out running ripping and running and with that girl and so when my mom died this girl was actively smoking and drinking in front of me all the time smoking weed and drinking and so when my mom died what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't have a program. I'm not working with a sponsor. Uh, I definitely don't have any sponsees. I just celebrated a year, March 9th of 2013. I celebrated my year, but that's all I did was celebrate. I got, a, you know, one of them temporary sponsors, you know, that people get. And I, and I only got them because I wanted, I wanted to celebrate. I wanted to show off and say, yeah, I got this. I'm like, good. Pat me you know, on the back you know, in front of yeah, the crowd. And- yeah, exactly. And it wasn't, it was uh, Mother's Day of 2013 I went and see my mom for the last time I woke her up just to tell her that I loved her and she told me that she loved me too and then she called my dad and complained about me waking her up mm-hmm. and then she was like I need to go to the hospital and he's like is it time and she said I just, I just need to go and she never came home mm-hmm. and four days later she died and uh, I didn't know how to handle it so the weed was there first and then the alcohol and within three months, I was smoking crack again. So for a year, nine months, I I ran uh, <laughs> in and out of the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I didn't want to surrender. I didn't want I didn't want what we all had to offer. I wanted my mom back, hmm. and uh, I didn't know how to express that. Uh, I wanted to be divorced from my wife. I wanted to see my kids without her nagging at me all the time. And I didn't know how to do that. I was lost. And so in December of 2014, I made a decision. I was in this relationship, very, very toxic, harmful relationship with this female. And I finally made a decision that I was going to do something different. And I moved into this halfway house in the West End of Louisville. And uh, I was there for about a month. And I started going to St. Stephen's Baptist Church over in Louisville. Uh, St. Stephen's uh, is an all-black church. The black uh I was probably one of maybe five or six white people in the whole church. Mm-hmm. And I never felt like I was out of place. Hmm. Those people loved me back to life and they accepted me as one of their own. And I sang in the choir and, and uh, they helped me get my life back together. They helped me get my a good job and uh, helped me get my finances straight. I mean, they fed me, they clothed me gave me a place to stay like got me out of that halfway house then I got my own apartment over on Brownsboro Road and and to this day I know I can still go back to that church and those people are still going to love on me mm-hmm. and I love them all just the same and I learned so much about myself and about the West End of Louisville while I was there at that church and I'll never ever forget it but while I was there three months after being there in that church um, this guy comes in and he's doing this AA meeting on Saturday mornings and I'm like you never forget where you come from, right? You know, until you hear that. And it obviously it, it, it was attractive. It was attraction, you know. And the, what this guy had to say attracted me. And I ended up speaking up in the meeting and saying something. But I was just sitting there thinking, like, man, maybe I need to get back in AA. And I started to pray about it. And I was talking to the guy in the church that, it, that was mainly helping me, this guy named Virgil Todd. Super, super nice guy. Uh, he don't mind me telling his name. He just loves helping people. And he said, well, if you think that's what you need, he says, but I think God's got you either way. And I was like, I agree. And uh, so I seen this guy 
I said, I said, I'm going to go to this. I'm going to go to one of the meetings I used to go to, which was Highland Peace, uh, when it was at Highland Peace Baptist Church mm-hmm. before they moved it. And uh, I go into this meeting, and who's there? The same guy that was given that meeting on that Saturday. Uh-huh. And I was like, wow. I was like, man, I said, I've seen, this is the second time I've seen you. I said, in a week. And I said, I don't believe in coincidences. How would you? I said, I need to, I've been sober for three months, but I don't have a sponsor. I said, will you be my sponsor? And he's, he gladly accepted. His name's Richard. Uh, Richard took me under his wing, and uh, I know that I probably called him a whole lot in that first year, as, as newcomers do. And, uh, and I, I, I worked the steps with him, and I, I stayed sober for four years. But what happened in that four years is uh, Richard got into a and he don't mind me telling you this he got into a situation he got 10 years sober and thought he was good and walked away from AA mm-hmm. and that was part of his story and he walked, ended up walking away from me and he abandoned me in a time of need and at the same time I got into one of those what I call a situationship mm-hmm. where I tried to tried to save a girl uh. you know she was still getting high and she was wanted to be sober but she wasn't willing to put forth the actions and I invited her into my home, and she was using in front of me. <laughs> and after a while, I finally gave in. And I never thought twice about my sobriety, what my rel- who my relapse was going to affect, which was my children, my support group, uh, my home group. And I used for one day. It was horrible. Hmm. It was horrible. That was December the 7th and 8th of 2019. And... Uh, so on the ninth, I'm sitting there and I got I got to go do something. I got to do the right thing. So on the tenth, I go into my home group, which is Power Choice, on that Monday, and I said I just spent a weekend with a glass pipe in my mouth and I need some help. And I got a new sponsor. His name is Eric. He's great. He's a very spiritual guy and uh, helps a lot of people. And uh, Eric took me through this book. And uh, he. He showed me what what a sponsor was, mm-hmm. and that, and that his job, in 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 a way that he worded it was God has given me a task to do, and that my task is to show you to to decipher this book, so to make sure you understand the textbook. It's not just to go through the twelve steps because that's easy. Anybody can go through the twelve steps. He said you need to learn how this textbook. This textbook is meant to be studied, and so we read the book. Like he literally sat down with me and we read this book. Hmm. We read the, you know, not just 164 pages. We read through the stories, you know, where we, we, we've been trying to get, get the time to go through the 12 and 12. We're still after almost four years. We haven't done that yet. But, uh, but, but he taught me about this book and, and he helped me to ingrain this book into my life. And the quality of my sobriety now is far more important to me than any kind of a quantity that I'll ever acquire. It's that quality of sobriety that, I mean, I think you know. Like it's mm-hmm. just, it's amazing how God has God has worked. Um, I've been fortunate enough to to be able to tell my story a lot of times uh, uh, all over uh, Louisville, uh, even in other parts of Kentucky, uh, even here in Indiana. I've been invited to celebrate recovery because I have a personal relationship, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, I've been here to celebrate recovery and spoke there. 
and, and and I don't have a perfect life and that's why I try to tell people I don't have a perfect life and that's why I say I need Jesus you know and and because uh, I, I still mess up every day and I'm still learning how to be a father uh, a year ago I got custody of my 16 year old son mm-hmm. which has been amazing uh, and it's also been a learning process because I had to learn how to be a dad again uh, and he reminds me and I tell people all the time you know he believe it or not he sponsors me more than you realize mm. like because he'll tell me he holds me accountable and he tells me things that I, that I never knew like he tells me like how he was affected through my alcoholism in the different stages of his life and like how long it took him to trust me again and, and how my relapse hurt him how he thought he was going to lose his father and you know all these powerful heartfelt things that have added to the quality of my sobriety um, one thing I'm going to say real quick before I stop uh in uh, in 2012, the Healing Place had a block party. They have a block party every year. This is in front of the old Healing Place, so old old building. And block off the street, and they set up a stage and whatever. And everyone in the Healing Place pretty much knew because I would always like freestyle rap in the courtyard and kind of mess around with people, you know. And but but I had a God conscious now, and so my friend, a good buddy of mine named Nate Bartley, uh, unfortunately he's not with us anymore, but hmm. but. Uh, Nate asked me. He said, "Man, uh, 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 hey, man, if I go go up there and tell the DJ that to give you the mic, will you will you freestyle for us?" I was like, "If the DJ says yes, I'll do it." You know, and and I was laughing, you know, because this guy I thought I was just great, you know, and uh, so Leonard, the DJ, was like, "Yeah, I'll do it." So I get up there, and something told me, "You need to pray." I'd never ever in any freestyle rap battle or anything in my life ever prayed before I rapped Hmm. so I went to the back of that stage and I got down on one knee and I prayed and I said God whatever you do just you know whatever whatever I'm just just whatever you need to do just do it you know I didn't know exactly I don't remember the exact words I said I I definitely prayed and I got up there and Leonard's like what beat you on I said it don't matter he said what do you mean I said God's in control and he just looked at me and smiled nodded his head and he got up there and he played this he played a beat and I started rapping, and when I tell you that 300 people rushed the stage, I don't can't tell you what I rapped about. All I can tell you is that I felt this glow. I just felt this weight that had been lifted off of me that I've never, ever felt in my life, and I was humbled by that, like those people rushing the stage like that, yeah. and I started to downplay. Man, that was awesome. You know, you get off stage, everybody's trying to high-five you, and I'm like, I don't want once in my life I don't want the attention I'm not trying to do this but to people please I did this for my friend that just asked me to do it that's the only reason I did it I didn't do it for me and that felt good yeah and uh, so this my friend Shelly she was a peer mentor over at the women's uh, she reached out to me and we started doing reading meditation books down at the waterfront hmm. and just hanging out as friends two really good friends and she looked at me one day and she goes, you ever thought about doing recovery rap? I said, what's that? She goes, I don't know what it is, but you'd probably be really good at it. I was like, okay. And so I started writing recovery rap music. And uh, the very first song I, call, I wrote was called uh, We Trudge. Hmm. And uh, I wrote several other songs. I wrote one song called The Bitter End, which is about uh, people going to the bitter end. Uh, uh, because I think it was... Uh, was a couple of years ago we had that really bad year uh, where there was like an overdose, what six or seven overdoses a day, and I know today it's still kind of bad, but they had that one year that it was really really bad, and I lost several friends that year, and I was inspired to write that song, and uh, 
I, I still have that song. I've performed it a couple of times, but uh, but that's one thing that one passion of mine that I, you know, one thing, one gift that God's given me that I can share with people. And uh, so before I go, uh, before I yeah. sign off, yeah. uh, uh, we'll do that. Uh, well, that is something though that I've noticed that you know was that people who are really enjoying their recovery, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know if that's the right word. Okay, so yeah. I don't know what word to wrap around that. I want to you know who look like they're having a good time in recovery, have something in their life. It's a creative element, right? You know whether yes. it's painting, playing I guitar, agree. singing. Yeah, uh, I find it in my woodworking. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah, you know, uh, lots of I know a gal that knits really cool stuff. Oh, wow. You know, and gets into yeah. that flow state kind of thing where the world disappears while yes. you're doing that. Yes. And there's, a, yes. there's that, you know, that's kind of what happened. And the opposite of that's in the work. Yeah. The jobs and stuff got boring, right? Because uh-huh. your skill level surpassed your challenge. Right. And there's no fun anymore, and I don't want to be here anymore. Right. These kind of creative elements, you really are never going to pass your, you're, you're never going to overachieve your, your the challenge. Right. You know what I mean? I'm never going to get so good at that's boring. Right. Uh, and that's what seems to be uh, it's just if you watch there's some elements creative thing doesn't surprise me a bit that uh, that's happened yeah. there's some things you know I always think about the big book when I'm listening to people's stories you know yeah because you can just hear quotes in it you know yeah uh, and uh, you know like the man go you were saying that you know uh, we are not saints Right. You know, and I'm glad I don't have to be. Exactly. I'm really glad that yeah. that's not something that I, I had to do to, to be, be to no. qualify for this because I would fall no. much short. No. And, you know, there was all these times where I proved to the world I was important. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that overachiever kind of element. That's another right. thing that's pretty yeah. that, you know, and it's I did I did it, too. You know, I was a superstar at work and, right. and needed everybody to see me even to the point of like sandbagging. Yeah. I knew that I could carry it over the finish line at the last minute. Right. And I'd get everybody worried and I'd drag my ass until the very last minute, you know, yeah. and everybody's panicking and I can pick up the ball and run across the thing. Right. Raise my arms in victory. They think, Dan, you are so great. You are yeah. the best engineer we've ever seen. Right. And uh and get that kind of accolades and it would work for me for the few minutes, right. you know. And those things were the dopamine shots, right? Yeah. That made me feel good, just like sex, just like the dope, just like getting this approval thing. Uh you were saying that, you know, we're you've heard it. That this thing really is a more disease, right? Because however much ain't enough, it yeah. doesn't make any difference how much it, and it doesn't make right. any difference what it is, right? Uh, yeah, I want more of it. If it makes me feel good, or yeah, you know, and good may not be the right word, right? Could right. Be, if it makes me forget about everything, yeah, if I can forget <laughs> about my I responsibilities and all the pain I have in my life, yeah, I want more of it. Yeah, yeah. and just falling back. I heard you talking. You know, getting that, having that tap on the shoulder. That says you got to do something different, dude. Yeah, you know I, I can remember looking in the mirror, man, and saying, "Damn, you have got to get a handle on this, dude." Yeah, and mean it. Yeah, mean it. But yeah. I couldn't, you know. Right. And I did the same kind of thing, you know. Yeah, I come in and got a year sober when I come in in 2011 to 12. Yeah, when my first run at getting sober. Yeah, and I come in like a superstar, right? You know, <laughs> and everybody's clapping for me. You yeah, know, how we do for newcomers. I thought that right. was just for me. Right. You know? Exactly. <laughs> Every newcomer comes in and gets that if he's yeah. doing the deal. Uh-huh. And then I got uh, a year of sobriety. Went up there and got my one year token. Um, got all those accolades, you know, and mm-hmm. and walked away basically. You yeah. know, and it was a drift. Right. I never did usually like just go see ya. 
Yeah. I just wasn't going to as many meetings. And yeah. I could skip that casual drop. And yeah. then just start drifting away. It's like they say, the they say you do the 12 steps backwards. Yeah. You know, yeah. you heard that? Yeah. 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 And, and, I, and, and when I look back and I see that, it's so true. Yeah. And a lot, not a lot of people have heard that, but it's it's powerful. You yeah. do actually end up you doing the 12 steps backwards. A guy backwards. said the other day about like going out on a raft in the ocean. Uh-huh. And if you fall asleep, you know, you get up and you look at the bank and it's just, you know, sure, it's just right over there, right? Yeah. The first. And you look up a little bit more and it's a little bit further away and a little yeah. bit. And then the next thing you know, you can't see the beach anymore, you know? Right. And it'll, yeah. this disease will pull you out to, to the, you know, pull it you sure out to will. the water, man, and pull it you sure out will. to the depths and you don't even see it coming. It is yeah. so crazy, you know, that line that like, uh, I forgot I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. You know? It's, yeah. <laughs> but it's true. You it is true. It. There's some it's truth so in true. that. that you, it's so I, true. That the the mental blank spot. But you don't want to recognize you're an alcoholic. All you want is that ease and comfort. Yeah. You know, that's all you want. You want to stop feeling whatever it is that you're feeling in that moment. You've allowed your feelings to override uh, rationality. And it yeah. is crazy. I, a guy, I listen to one guy, and I still use this all the time, that this thing uh, somewhat operates like a computer virus. Mm-hmm. You know, and I like it because it hijacks your operating system. Yeah. And I no longer have the wheel. No, I think I definitely do. not. I think I got the wheel. <laughs> yeah. But I'm not eating. So, like, and also that helps me deal with uh, just stupid newcomers. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's yeah. not that. It's not that. They're right. hijacked. Yeah. You might as well. It's like a split personality thing. Mm. You know, there's a few parasites out in nature that do that. Yeah. There's a thing that'll hijack a well, pl- toxoplasmosis that hijacks rats. Yeah. That gets into their brain and makes them attracted to the smell of cat pee. Right. And they will go actually commit suicide because that. That parasite needs to get into that cat's belly. To My son watches its, stuff like that all the time to create its life cycle. Yeah. And there's real elements out there in the world that do yeah. that. There's a there's quite a few of them of these things that hijack other things' operating systems. Yeah. And even though this isn't that, no more than it's an allergy, right? It was yeah. just a good parallel view trying to say, okay, it's like that. Yeah. And this thing is like a parasite, man. It crawls in there, and you're not driving anymore. Right. It's like zombies. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's and crazy. it's a, it's unbelievable the the way it will crash us and beat us up. Yes, and and we'll go back in the ring again. You know, we'll climb right up through the ropes and say, "All right, come on." And it's like when Bill says, "You know, it won't burn me this time." And here's mm-hmm. how. What's the book say? We, we cannot bring it to our consciousness. Yep. What's yeah. sufficient for us? And then surfing of a week or a month ago. Yeah, that's one of my favorite lines too, man. Because right. I, you yeah. know, he he gives some week or a month ago you know I can talk I talk about in my story there was a particular time that I couldn't remember from last night yeah you know yeah. I, I was back I had just oh, crushed yeah. I had just pulled the entire structure down on my head yeah last night and the, all, the first thing I did was take some more in the morning yeah you know, oh yeah I'm going I'm looking at prison I yeah. am in trouble and I can't help it yeah I, I can remember I remember waking up thinking okay what am I going to steal today and take to the pawn shop? Mm-hmm. Like waking at the first thought in the morning. Like it wasn't even like, where am I going to go to work? What am I, I, all I was thinking about was I need more of what I had last night. Yeah, you know. And as soon as I called the dope man, you got any more of what you had last night? Like the same stuff? Like that's exactly what I told him. Yeah. It's crazy. And who am I going to step on to get what I need exactly. to get Exactly. Because it doesn't yeah. really matter. It's whoever's about I even I don't even care who. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it was just... You know, yeah, I, I was just it's horrible. Yeah, it was you hear about us, you know, stealing our brother's baseball card collections and yes, mom's my jewelry kids, and my kids, kids my nephew. I, saw, I stole my nephew's video games once. Yeah, like, like who? Dark. Like, so horrible. Go home, pr- pretend like you're gonna get sober, and then start stealing stuff out of the house. Yeah, like 
that's what I did. I would go to my parents' house and pretend I was going to get sober. I'd still, like, my nephew's, like, PlayStation 2 games, and I'd steal a couple of my dad's electric tools. And I'd wait to sell my dad's tools so he couldn't pick up on it right away, you know, which pawn shop we was going to go to. I thought I was outsmarting everybody. They knew the whole time. They loved me enough not to press charges. Yep. I should have been in prison. Yeah, and whether that was, you know, you would yeah. or yeah, you said, there's been times in my life. Well, a lot of times I got left off the hook. Yeah. You know, and, and it was out of love mm-hmm. that I was got let off the hook. Yeah. Uh, but I'm not sure. That, <laughs> but, you know, who can guess about this journey, you know, and that, oh, what it takes what it takes, and who knows, you know. Yeah. Um, when I was in my 20s and was getting in trouble, Today, I look back and I go, there is absolutely no way that I was hearing this message when I was in my 20s. I just wasn't going to. I just wasn't. I went to my first AA meeting on a DUI when I was 16. I was had my driver's license for six months and got a DUI. And New Orleans, Floyd County Court sent me to AA. Wow. And, um, you know, and you want to talk about somebody that don't, you know, how hard it is to feel like you belong there anytime, right? Yeah. I mean, our body is just fighting. I don't belong here. Uh, at 16 years old, I knew, you know, I didn't belong here. Um, yeah. And, but those seeds got planted. Yeah. And you were saying that earlier, same thing like with the God thing, that seed getting planted in you, that, right. that's real. And yeah. It, and, it, and it takes hold in there, you know, and you heard stuff at AA meetings that was taking hold. You couldn't. I couldn't buy in yet. You know, it took right. something pretty, it took something drastic to get me to push all my chips to the middle of the table and just yeah. say, take me. Yeah. That surrender, that real surrender. Yeah. When I actually surrendered every bit of it. And, and so the moment powerful. I did that, yeah, life's been unbelievable. It's crazy. Uh, so many cool things. I have a miracle list where I write down oh, that's I, cool. of stuff that's happened that's yeah. unbelievable. That's and there's cool. no way I should have not went to prison. I was right. not, I was, I was going. Yeah. Uh, and I can say the word burglary. I can't say burglary. Um, <laughs> it's kind of like when people come in and they're brand new and they can't say, I'm an alco- I'm a co- alcoholic. You uh, yeah. know, you hear people stumble yeah, through an- that. Or anonymity. Yeah. I still <laughs> yeah. stumble on that word. but uh, And I didn't, you know. And then another thing would happen and another thing would happen. And, you know, things that looked like they were real pain, like they were going to be bad for me, you know, yeah. ended up being the stuff that was the best for me. Wow. And uh, yeah. it's like a long-term gratitude. Listen, here's what my sponsor, I tell my sponsors this too. Things are going to start happening in your life as a result of you working these 12 steps and practicing these principles in your life. Like you said earlier, you know, working the steps is all good and well. Right. But you got to. and all your affairs. Yes, you have to. Yeah. That's, and when you do that, things are going to start going real cool. They're going to have yeah. cool stuff happening, man. You're going to patch stuff up with relatives. You're going to get yeah. jobs. You're going to, you know, and write them down. Yeah. Because I will for, I've forgotten them. You know, makes sense. if I don't have a list that I can actually look up and I'll pull it up on my phone sometimes, like right before I'm going to talk, yeah. I'll look at, I'll just peruse it. I don't know what I'm going to talk about, but right. I'll peruse that list of miracles. And it's like a long-term gratitude list, you know, yeah. uh, and it's just mine, you know, it doesn't matter if anybody else, some of the stuff in there doesn't make sense to other people. Well, I'll tell you, it makes I, sense to me. I pray in the car or, or I prayed in the car, but when I get in front of the podium, you know, when I pray, and this has just been a staple prayer for me, I, I try to pray from the heart, first of all. And the, and the second thing that I do is I say, God, I'm not qualified to mm-hmm. carry this message. And that, that I, I, I honestly believe that with all my heart, like, that without God, like, none of this, none of this, this life, this sobriety, uh, any of the success that I've had, any of the storms that I've had to walk through in the last almost four years. Amen. Uh, uh, it's only been by the grace of a loving God that, you know, because I, on my own, 
there's no way I could have done any of it. All right. Nope. No, I'm not, no, no, no possible way. And I'm convinced of that because, you know, someone told me, they said, and I heard this, and I don't know if it was in church or an AA meeting or whatever. They said, you're not going to ever be able to experience God, experience God until you start looking for him. And then, uh, and then another funny thing I like to say is, is, uh, is in the movie Forrest Gump, you know, it's Lieutenant Dan and Forrester there in New York. That's my nickname and on the chat. Mine, what? Lieutenant Dan. Dan? Well, Lieutenant Dan. Well, well, I talk like Forrest, but anyway. Uh, so, but Dan, Lieutenant Dan looks at Forrest Gump and says, Forrest, if you found Jesus and Forrest Gump, it's so simple. It was says the, the simplest funniest line in the whole movie he goes i didn't know i was supposed to be looking for him, lieutenant dan <laughs> and it's hilarious but but we as alcoholics that's that's so true are yeah. we really supposed to be seeking god yes yeah the big book says that yeah you know and, what if he were sought right and doesn't it's, mean you're gonna find it right and, really and, and exactly the requirement is not to find it's to seek exactly and 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 that that's what changed it. It was my perspective. Or what are you? Are you really trying to see God in every area of your life? Because yeah. when I'm not trying to see God, what am I trying to see? I'm trying to see me. Yeah. And when I'm doing trying to see me, it usually doesn't go well. Yeah. In my experience, and I, and I can see that. I can see that the the pattern of my behavior when I try to take my will back. Because I know we all struggle. Some people struggle with it. I know I do sometimes with taking my will I believe back. it's a human condition. Especially when things are going great. Yeah. Like if everything's coming together, everything's firing on all cylinders, there's not a cloud on the horizon. I got it's, this. I go, oh, it's me, me, me. Whoa. Let me yeah. stop. Right. Let me let, let me come back in. Let me practice some real humility. And, and sometimes it takes, and, and, I, and, and most of the time, God puts another alcoholic in front of me to remind right. me, yeah. hey, here I am. Remember me? Yeah. And it's like, wow. You know, and yeah. I don't even see it coming, but as soon as I see it, I recognize it. And that's only because of having that conscious contact. Like and, and been then praying every morning. That that's been that's just that's getting better. Yeah. That just continues to get better and yeah. better and better. Yeah, so. I just uh I, I, I feel like I pray all day at some level. Yeah. As I used to talk to myself. And have that conversation. Yeah. And I've practiced it re-gearing that to be in a conversation with my higher power. That's cool. With God, you know. Yeah. And, 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 That's real cool. And, 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 you know, and I'm working and something's not working out right, you know, my first, my that working part of the mind, you know. My, my first thing is, after I cuss for a minute, mm-hmm. my yeah. next thing is, is help me. I'm going to yeah. stand back for a minute. I'm going right. to stand back. I'm going to pause and take it easy. I'm not going to force it. Right. And I'll come back at it, and I'll have the help I needed. You know, yeah. something will magically happen, work, that didn't work a minute ago when I asked for that help. Yeah. I got a young, a young, I had a young sponsor, and he was real angry. And I think one of the things that I told him, I said, I don't care if you get angry. I said, yeah. I'm not going to sit here and tell you don't get mad. I'm not going to sit here and tell you not to cuss and fit and moan and groan and complain. But just don't stay there. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's like, Wow. Sometimes you have to get that out of your system. Yeah, you, 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 we need to vent to discharge that energy. Yeah, the, the, but then vent and then turn to God. Right. Yep. You yep. know, and I that's, that's immediately. I was a big one of the when you asked in the beginning about this, the how the podcast happened. One of the things was is that I, I became a speaker tape junkie. Uh-huh. You know, on the internet and listening to AA all the time because anything yep. else I listened to. Uh, had triggers, right? You know, music, TV, the news, mm-hmm. all that stuff. Everything was attached to that, to, right. to drinking and using, you know. Yeah. And I was, couldn't find anything, but I started pulling those speaker tapes in my brain. And wow. I had a job at that time where I could just sit and listen all day long. Yeah. And I and I got so much out of those tapes over the years, you know. Huh. Um, there was one of the guy that was talking about uh, we don't find God because we're not looking low enough. 
you know, I'm looking for a burning bush and up in the sky for something, you know, I'm right. not looking at you. Yeah. Cause that's where God is. God right. shows up in shoe leather around me and that kind of stuff. I, yeah. Uh, that's cool. And I, I like those things that I picked up from that, but it meant so much to me and it it, it brainwashed me and my, my mind needed washing. I yeah. needed a new way of thinking and I listened to 12 step recovery that's all day cool. long and that's it was cool. from people telling their stories like you did here yeah where i got to, they shared their experience strength and hope with me and uh that's one of the reasons why i'm doing this today because it's not just circuit speakers stories are powerful we got powerful stories all in our community yeah and i'm trying of... to gather up as many of them <laughs> as i can and i like to have people come back too because you'll have more to, you know right more to say something different yeah of course in the future and that I'd kind of thing to. you know i like to get yeah. those guys in here at one year and then get them back in and then at two and listen right. to how different that is in those yeah. two years yeah. see the growth yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's pretty cool yeah, yeah i have a small soft spot in my heart i know it's a little bit of an uphill battle for some of the young guys you know i'm seeing a lot yeah, of you know i got a guy who uh a couple of weeks ago he uh celebrated one year of sobriety i think it was july 29th no he turned 21 on july 29th and he celebrated a year on the 31st wow yeah so he and i had him in here when he did that that's uh, so and cool. so watch a guy that you know because i would like i said a man go i wasn't even anywhere in a headspace to be able to no, hear this stuff no, I was and he didn't class. have to go crashing you know he hasn't burned up as much stuff has caused as caused as much yeah. wreckage by then yeah. and, you know will he stay who knows Right. But that seed is firmly planted, yeah. and he's also seeing a way of life that you know his, he was dead ending, and to be able to pull the nose up on the airplane uh, early on is is uh, is a fantastic thing. And, yeah. uh, and my listeners know this too, but my 17 year old daughter on the 4th of August celebrated six months of sobriety. She fell into the pain pill thing, yeah, and and, and came here. I worry about that with my kids a lot, and, and you know, but, I, but I learned perks are not right. Hydro and and oxy anymore, you know, it's fentanyl. right. And uh, God scared me to death. Yes, it is. But I tell the same thing as what I said in the beginning of the podcast. I can guarantee you that if you will work these twelve steps and practice these principles, if you will do what I say, yeah, uh, then your life is going to get better. I can yes, guarantee you yes, that. It yes, it and is. And all the problems she could have brought me, if she'd have been pregnant, she'd have been, you know, yeah. who knows what all kind of problems she could have brought me. Right. She brought me the perfect problem because I know what to do about that. That's problem. so cool. Yep. And um, twenty-four-year-old sponsor fell out of the ceiling, and she. I joke. One of my favorite jokes lately is is that I did call the Guinness Book of World Records because yeah. I got a record. This yeah. is the first time a 17 year old daughter has listened to her dad. First wow. time. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah, uh, that's great. Yeah, she just that's popped in here just a second funny. ago. And, and ain't it great how how you got God God put you in that position, like to to be able to be there for her? Because imagine how imagine if she'd have been in that position and she didn't have you to turn yeah. to. Yeah. How much further that could have gone? Yeah. Like, because we see, you know, a lot of people dive into that rabbit hole out of curiosity, and it and it and it's scary, you know, when you have kids and you think it about, is. you know, you see, I don't like to say the isms much, but you see some of those behaviors that could be alcoholism, and maybe it's not, maybe it's just, you know, maybe they just have some mental issues or something going on, but growing up stuff. What's that? Growing up is tough. Yeah, it is, especially today. It's so so hard, and yeah. I and I see that in my own kids, all three of my kids, and uh, 
you know, them being teenagers. And but what I what I'm so grateful for, and what has God has given me, is give me the ability to, to to open a door that I for them that I didn't have growing up. Mm-hmm. And that and that door says, it, it, and it tells them, hey, I can sit down with my dad, and I can tell him anything, and and I didn't have that with yeah. my dad. Yeah. I had it with my mom. Always with my mom, yeah. my, my dad. I didn't have that with either one of my parents. Right. And I had yeah. great parents. Yeah. It wasn't that. Yeah. It was just I wasn't able. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I didn't so. have it in me to open up. Right. Right. Uh, well, I didn't open up. I didn't. I, there was a lot of things I still wanted to hold on to myself because I still wanted to be, you know, we, you know, we got the fundamental of, you know, right and wrong. And I still yeah. kind of wanted to have to do, be wrong. You know, I still wanted to do me in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and again, that's kind of human condition thing, you know. Yeah. We gotta step in some piles of poop. You just have to. <laughs> you yeah. just don't, and you don't get an escape either. Nobody right. got a pass. Yeah. Every once in a while, I think I see somebody that got a pass, but they're just hiding it. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very good at it. Yeah. 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 So yeah, it's a. Uh, to be, I know I can. You can relate that the highlight today of, of my daily thing is to have these guys that are counting on me to stay sober, so that they can stay sober, so they can get sober. Yes. You know, yeah. places that accountability in my life, and yeah. um, and then her too. You know, now I got enough, yeah. some more insurance on my uh, recovery. Yeah, and life is too good to give it up today. And that's another thing I never found before. It never got so good that I wouldn't cash it in. Right. And I think it's it's that good today. I don't ever want to say I got it. I don't ever. I'm gonna keep on working this thing. I have pushed my chips in the middle of the table, right. but it just doesn't make any sense anymore at all right. to trade in what I have. And I know it'll just sound like a toilet flush in the minute I do too. Yeah, it's not gonna be a slow burn. Right. Right. Uh, question. So, do you? Uh, and I know this is gonna kind of sound left wing a little bit, but uh, do you uh, kind of let people know that that the people that come in here to speak are willing to, to, to come oh, yeah. out anywhere to go. Uh, yeah. I, I wanted to mention that. Because uh, I, we, we, I do like to have a little chit-chat, and, and, you know, I like to hear your story, but you did mention you have something you would like to share with us. Oh, yes, yes, yes. And was the, there something the else? Lyrics. Was well, this not I was that? Just, oh, this is that. But I was just, this. I could do that. But what I was asking is, is if there's anyone that would want me to come speak, oh. you know, uh, yeah, anywhere, uh, anywhere in Indiana, uh, a certain Indiana or anywhere all over state of kentucky i'm willing to travel uh please just, you want you know, i can put your telephone number in the show notes if you uh, want that'd be great that'd be fine uh, so i have no problem with that you or i could they can contact me and i can hook you, you know up. uh i believe not only in loving people out loud but also recover out loud yeah um i'm not exactly an anonymous uh yeah me either because i started this i i believe that maybe you know uh maybe i'll be the only big book someone sees one day yep. and if that's going to help somebody stop taking a drink or a drug or May maybe decide to do something different. That I'm okay with that today. Yeah, yeah. So I believe you can be too uh, anonymic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if I agree. you're not, if you're not, because uh, yeah. who knows if that person's going to see it, you know, and understand it for what it is. And right. oh, there's another little thing. We do our healing work, right? Uh-huh. And, and because down the line, God has plans, mm-hmm. and these other people are going to come bump into you. Mm-hmm. And they're going to need what you're what you're. They're going to need to bump into this healed individual. Exactly. You know. And if you don't do that, yeah, they're gonna there they went. 
Yeah. You know? Yep. And I don't want to be, I don't want to miss, I don't, I don't, I don't want to miss it. I don't either. So uh, I'll keep on standing out here with my sign up and yeah, uh, me too. being available. That's for sure. But yeah, I'll go on and get into uh, that thing. This is uh, from a song I wrote called, uh, called We Trudge. Uh, it's a song I wrote. I picked up this big book after a friend suggested that I write a recovery song but how are you going to write a song in recovery without the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and I started brainstorming and this is kind of what I came up with this is the second verse <clears throat> no it isn't easy but we do this willingly to give someone a shot of hope as they watch you and me you see every day's a struggle yeah we know it's true as we recover with many or as we recover with many and recover with a few the root of our problem is centered in ourselves full of fear and anger always blaming someone else but today my life is different no more sorrow no tears once reduced to nothing but now I'm standing here I'm just trying to pass the message because that's what matters most and someone was there for me when I was chasing dope my obsession's been removed I guess I did it right when I gave my will to God and let him care for my life we've got a common bond intertwined by faith so if you're listening feeling hopeless just know it ain't too late turn your way from your wicked ways come on and join us as we strap on our boots with purpose because today we trudge very cool man you know when people that i get chills i get this tingle in my neck some people say it's asmr have you heard of that no <laughs> uh, i never knew what to call it but like you can be do you get like when something touches I get god you really I call it god bumps. and i get this yeah. tingle in the back of my neck that i feel like a cat you know i'm just gonna brrr, yeah uh, yeah and uh yeah God, God is a. And we be we'll be listening to songs. My girlfriend and I, or my, my son and I, will go through. Uh, uh, we're watching a movie or something, and we just those those God bumps come, and we're just yeah. gonna look at each other like. And when you embrace, feel that with someone, like just knowing, wow, amen, you know? man. And I that was the very first song I wrote in recovery uh, in, in 2012. Um, hopefully, I'll be able to have it on digital platform soon. That'd be uh, cool. Um, but uh, but yeah, I, I I love just love being able to carry the message and, and helping people in any way I can, and that's just another way of doing it. And that's also gives me a lot of hope. Yeah, uh, myself, it's and it's just super fun. cool, really man. A lot of fun. So. I'm, uh, I don't know what the right word is. It is I'm impressed, but I'm uh, tickled. I'm like an envious thing. I wish I could do that. Uh, it's cool. Yeah. I like it. I appreciate cool. that. Uh, I never have been like into music like that, uh-huh. but I think this is a prejudice that kept me out because I was taught some things when I was younger that still right. have a hard time letting go of. You know, yeah. I will say I've let go of it because I don't right. stand here and uh, yeah anymore. But it's too far in there, you know. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, yeah. I never learned how to play an instrument growing up. Uh, I wish I had. I'll tell you what. I was five. Uh, no, I was. I was probably ten years old, and I asked my parents for some drums, and they said it's too loud. Too loud. Yeah, I'll never forget that. Yeah, you know, that was, that was another one that we decided while. to work through. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. but but you know, it, it's it's okay. It's all right. Yeah, my younger, my middle daughter Constance, she got she got a drum set like two years ago, and I was so elated. I was like, thank God, she got it. That's all right. Yeah. You know, and she's not, she's doing pretty good. So, but it's pretty awesome, man. So three yeah, kids. Really, yeah. Three amazing kids. How old are they now? Uh, 14, 15, and 16. 14, but 15. my 16-year-old will be 17 in December. So him and his middle daughter, Const- and my middle daughter, Constance, they're 18 months apart. And then Charity and Constance are a year and 11 days apart. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. We had three kids in less than, you know, less than four years. And 
neither one of us were ready. Right. Yeah. We really weren't. And, and and I've since made amends to to, to my ex wife, and uh, and we communicate quite a bit when it comes to the kids. And we of course we've had our struggles, you know. And uh, but you know one thing that my sponsor has taught me and that I've I've embraced through these twelve steps is that my side of the street being clean is is the most important thing that I can do. And being willing, being willing to make those amends gives me that humility and that was a powerful 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 piece for me yeah. it's being Amen. willing just becoming yep. willing and I I don't say I've made all my amends but I, God has definitely made yeah I'm made not it. sure what all my amends yeah, are yeah right God is definitely when, when, exactly. when God presents me with them and I become willing there's no words to explain yeah Describe the feeling you talking about them God bumps. Yeah, like I'm having right now, just thinking about it. Like it's so powerful. It is. It really, really yeah. is. It's so freeing, you know. And it removes that. You know, I think we also had a little doubting Thomas thing in us. You know, that yeah. Wants to, and those kind of things relieve that doubt. You know, yeah. it's like that can't be right. Uh, it puts some real in it, right? Because I don't see God in the yeah. cloud or whatever. Yeah. Know. Uh, but I get it. Um, I get it by pr- community mostly. Yeah, yeah. With other people, yeah. that's when I feel it. And I need that community more than I realize sometimes. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yep. So, well, you want to do one more? You got another in your hip pocket? Uh, I, I start out my day as I put God first, with my face in my hands and my knees in the dirt. Humble by his mercy and saved by his grace. Doing his will as I try to run this race. I'm keeping pace with bootstrapped. I'm focused on the sun. Cause as it goes down, that's another battle won. Fighting daily in this struggle as I dance in the rain. I'm done with feeling nothing and feeling all this pain. I ain't ashamed by who I am. I'll bow to no man. It's one day at a time as I work this program. And I don't give a damn what you think about me. Cause I don't play when it comes to me and my disease. I've been to hell's gates. I knew I had enough. It's not how you fall. So get your ass up. Let me qualify myself so I can be free. I'm just another alcoholic trying to beat this disease. Very cool. Thanks, Rick. Thank you. Uh, We'll end it the same way I always do. If you're not having a blast in your recovery, you're not doing it right. And I want to thank everybody out there for uh, allowing Ricky and I to participate in our recoveries in this manner tonight. Peace out. Oh